0: everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. You know, it's becoming more and more relevant to think of us as living on a planetary sphere, because right now, as we're entering airtime on the great American Southwest of the United States, a half a world away, literally on the other side of the planet, there is a drama playing out. They are attempting now the second rescue of the second set of kids' from that Thailand cave where they've been trapped for something like 16 days. Last night, as we were just uh, going off the air, I read a story that came across the wire and I would please ask our our group here to all kind of pay attention to the news wires, the news feeds, and kind of tell me if something exciting is breaking. Because last night it broke that they were beginning the rescue. And a few hours later, they had been able to extract four of the boys successfully <clears throat> in diving gear with face masks and respirators and I mean uh, it, it's just it's amazing how uh, these kids have have come up to uh, an extraordinary level given the stress they've been under the lack of food underground no lights no plumbing no you know bugs everywhere I mean it's just astonishing that they were able to get four of them out successfully and whisk them off to the hospital well they're now on the second leg and sometime during the show we may get news that more have been successfully rescued. Which, if we do, uh, we will bring it to you. So, if you want to go to the other side of midnight. and click on tonight's graphic, or Andrew for Andrew Collins, the beautiful view of Cygnus that Kenty was able to stretch, make a gorgeous graphic. Anyway, click on that. That will take you to tonight's page for Sunday night, June June July eighth. And if you scroll down under My Items and Radio with Pictures, you'll see. The boys have been successfully pulled from the cave. That's the first item. The second item is really intriguing because there is a picture of the little mini submarine that apparently Elon Musk and engineers have put together and are in the process of flying to Thailand to rescue whoever needs rescuing in that kind of a conveyance. But apparently, the first four got out successfully with divers, you know, as buddies, uh, swimming all that way. It takes them. Something between 9 and 11 hours. Can you imagine being an 11-year-old kid, never having dived before, and have to swim underwater in the dark for 11 hours to get home safely? I mean, that's just astonishing. Um, Now, all of that route is not water. If you look at the side view that we've been seeing on the news – There are sections that are underwater, and there are many sections that are above water. So they obviously bring them through the water parts, and then they walk overland or crawl. You know that's why it takes so long because you're basically crawling. You know through through a cave. I mean, I, I had a a sister, my elder sister, who had a boyfriend many many years ago who was a spelunker, and furthermore, he was handicapped. He was born without, I believe, it was his right arm. And he loved diving in caves. He loved going underground. I don't know whether he actually dived underground, whether he actually had to wear respirators and tanks and all that. Um, To me, that's not where I really want to be. So I'm incredibly impressed by the valor and the strength and the capabilities of of, of these guys because they're they're just uh, phenomenal. I mean, to be hit with this when they're – Having a fun afternoon, they were going into these caves to kind of explore after a, a, um, a soccer game. It was, you know, kind of a practice match. And one of the kids had a birthday. So I'm not quite sure why that's ringing. Okay, we don't want that to do that. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, dear. Whatever can go wrong will go wrong. Um, I'm not quite sure why that came on like that. Anyway, Kinthea, uh, if you can call Robert and tell him it's going to be 2 o'clock, that would be useful. Um, anyway, where was I? So these kids have been under incredible stress for 16-plus days, and the final stress is simply getting out alive because the oxygen in the cave is getting lower. Um, these caves are not impermeable, but the, the uh, exchange rate, particularly if you know a lot of the cavities are blocked by water, is going to be much less than it would be if they were, uh, you know, functioning uh, normally uh, closer to the entrance or something. Anyway, so we'll maintain a watch on that. And if they get more of them out successfully, we'll let you know. And uh, you might, you know, tell me, someone who's watching the news, you know, in Discord, you can send me a note and it will be relayed to me. And that would be all very well and good. Now, we're going to be switching gears here because I wanted to – Talk about a couple of things before I bring Andrew on. We have a very interesting situation on Mars. In case you haven't noticed, there is a global dust storm. So if you go to item number three, there is a very famous British amateur astronomer. I mean, these guys are so incredibly high end and high level that it almost seems demeaning to call them amateurs. Damien Peach has been worldwide on the net with some stunning imagery of the planets, of the moon of more, shall we say, uh, time-critical celestial events. He has published a um, time-lapse where he fades back and forth on his Twitter account between an image taken of Mars of the dust storms uh, a few days ago and one taken and compiled by Mike Malin from the Mars Global Surveyor mission some years ago. And you can see that basically you can't see anything. Now, this is particularly... Kind of disappointing because, as you know, if you've been up late and looking toward the east-southeast, Mars is that brilliant flaring orange point of light getting bigger and brighter every night. We will be in opposition on the 27th of this month and closer than we've been for 17 years on the night of the 31st. Unfortunately, for all the amateur astronomers who've been eagerly waiting this once every 17-year closest opposition, you're going to see nothing but dust, and the dust may have a casualty. Um, we, we updated you a few weeks ago, maybe a week or two ago, about the fate of Odyssey, which is one of three U.S. rovers on the surface. Um, one Spirit is defunct. Actually, there's more than three, but the the ones who are part of the Athena uh, fleet, Spirit and uh, Opportunity. Spirit died a couple of three years ago. Opportunity has been still going strong, except they're powered by solar energy. And if you saw any of the images taken of the sun from the surface from the uh, various Mars missions, you can, you can see you can't see anything. The sun literally is blotted out, and if you have a solar-powered rover, it ain't going to work. So Opportunity is hunkered down in some kind of um, um, you know suspended animation mode. Um, I'm not quite sure what NASA calls it. And they're hoping they will get a call when the rover checks its uh, battery life, battery levels, voltages, and all that. And that way it will quote, see the sun and it will know from the rising voltages that the uh, the current is flowing into the batteries and it can call home and let everyone know that it's okay. Well, they've been waiting now a couple weeks, and it hasn't called home because the storm is still raging. I mean, The physics of a dust storm that engulfs an entire planet is something we just don't understand on this planet. But if Musk is successful in sending colonists to Mars, we may get a lot of new news on global dust storms. That could be one of the major impediments. Now, two last items, number four and number five. Let's go to number five first. This is 2018. This is the 50th anniversary Of one of the most remarkable films, I think, of all time. And it turns out I'm not alone. Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was written, co written by Arthur Clarke, my old friend, and Stanley Kubrick, both of whom are now gone. Uh, This is the 50th anniversary this year. And there's all kinds of interesting things. There's new versions of the film that have been prepped. So you'll be able to go into theaters and see the original, um, you know, hard copy, actual 70 millimeter film. Not on a cassette, not on a DVD, not at home, but in a big widescreen theater with sound, stereo, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the way it was originally seen by those of us that were fortunate enough in 1968 to see it for the first time. Now, it went from being a film that none of the critics understood – is that surprising? – to now it's being acclaimed by a lot of critics as maybe one of the best films of all time. And the thing I find interesting is that it's the only film in a big way that grapples what we're going to be talking about tonight, the origins of humanity, the real origins of humanity. So if you go to link number five, you can click on that. There's actually an interview that uh, Kubrick, before he died, did with, I guess, a Japanese broadcaster, where he actually said in his own words – this is a record, a record of a, of a telephone conversation, not a not a film interview, but this was on the telephone, and he actually explains the ending of two thousand one in his own words. And it'll be kind of interesting if you want to send me a note, you know, either through the website or through my private email, which some of you have, or through the other side of midnight uh, or enterprise. Um, I'd like to know. How many of you already figured it out before Stanley posthumously explained what the ending really meant? And finally, item number four, we've had a very interesting year since last October when the first interstellar visitor came through the solar system, made a sharp left-hand turn, and left. Kind of like a lot of people have been talking and thinking and relating to uh, Arthur Clarke's incredibly interesting book, Rendezvous with Rama. I recommend strongly you kind of go out and find Rendezvous with Rama. It's available on Amazon because it's kind of like the storyboard of Oumuamua, which is the Hawaiian name that NASA gave this visitor, um, coming in from the dark, the interstellar darkness, and then making this sharp turn around the sun and leaving. Now – What's interesting and what makes this so apropos what we're going to talk about with my guest, Andrew, in a few minutes is that this now – this object has been catalogued, has been clocked, has been measured as leaving the sun with more energy than it arrived. And that's that's not possible, at least under normal physics. That's not possible. And, of course, those will be folks who say, oh, well, it shows it's some kind of interstellar vehicle, an arc, some kind of messenger, some kind of of craft. Or maybe because it's tumbling in three axes, processing like mad, it's demonstrating in the solar system what a friend of mine, Bruce De Palma, demonstrated many, 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 many decades ago with two spinning steel pinballs, one of which he spun up. And, of course, it was processing as it was spinning, the other which was not rotating. And he found in the Earth's gravitational field that the spinning processing ball gained energy and went higher, farther, longer than the ball that was not spinning. So it was a muamua, an interstellar arc, a spaceship, a derelict, because, of course, nobody's heard signals – or was it, in fact, simply an exemplifier of a physics that we're trying to understand and is the case in broad public view that Newton and relativity, Einstein, are not the last word in objects circling the sun? Now, why is this relevant to tonight? Because it came from the direction of Lyra and Cygnus. It came from the direction of the constellation we're going to be talking about at great length with my guest of the evening, Andrew Collins. So without further ado, let me introduce Andrew. Andrew is a historical writer and explorer living in the United Kingdom in a beautiful place called Lee-by-the-Sea or Lee-on-the-Sea. We'll ask about that. He's the author of more than a dozen books. Oh, another one of them. I feel so far behind. That challenge the way we perceive the past. These include From the Ashes of Angels, that was back in 1996, which establishes that the watchers of the Book of Enoch and the Anunnaki of the Sumerian texts are the memory of a shamanic elite that catalyzed the Neolithic revolution in the Near East at the end of the last ice age. Then he wrote Atlantis in the Caribbean in 2016, which pins down the source of Plato's Atlantis to the Caribbean island of Cuba and the Bahamian or Bahaman archipelago. Then there was Tutankhamun: the Exodus Conspiracy, co-authored with Chris Olegive-Herald in 2002. These are not in sequence, you might have gathered. Which reveals the truth behind the discovery of Tutankhamun's famous tomb, and the one we're going to talk about tonight a lot, the Cygnus mystery, which he penned in 2006. Do people pen books anymore? No, they use word processors. Which shows that the constellation of Cygnus has been universally venerated, as the place of first creation and the entrance to the sky world since paleolithic times. Oh, and then he wrote the uh, light quest that was in 2012, which demonstrates that UFOs are most likely plasma constructs that display sentience, clear intelligence and interactive qualities. And moreover, these mysterious light forms appear to create multi-dimensional environments and bubble universes that might well be behind the classic, Missing Time Experiences Associated with UFO Encounters. Well, I could go on and on He wrote a book about Gobekli Tepe Which we're going to talk about at some length And many others. If you want to find out everything Just scroll down to the bottom of his page tonight There is his website www.andrewcollins.com, And a picture Looking very, very um, Not exactly Writerish. It's more like uh, Indiana Jones meets uh, Sam Spade Anyway, Andrew Collins, you're on the other side of midnight. Uh, yes, yeah, you for
1: that wonderful introduction, and uh, good to be here. It's uh, five, just on 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, but for some reason I'm actually feeling quite bouncy, so uh, <laughs> should have a good interview. <laughs> well, that's good.
0: Hey, this is your second time you've been on the show, and yeah. what, what I wanted to focus on was this whole Cygnus connection because – We've now had several interesting anomalies appear in the news and in our conversations here on the other side of midnight involving Cygnus and Lyra, not the yep. least of which, of course, is the discovery by Kepler, the Kepler Space Telescope of Tabby's star. Yep. And then there is the discussion by my friend um, uh, Chris Knowles that the, the great seal of the United States of America – is actually a clandestine version of Cygnus and Lyra and the shield and the eagle and all that is part of an arcane mythology and code which points us in the direction of the place where Oumuamua utterly out of the blue came from whisked around the sun and then disappeared into the darkness so uh, it just seemed to be time to talk to you about this really remarkable book and the the structures on the ground, the architecture on the ground that was discovered not too, too long ago, in the, I think 1994 was the first real excavation of Gobekli Tepe and the discovery by the archaeologist who did it, whose name escapes me, you will remind me, uh, that it was so much more than just another average Middle Eastern tell. So where do you want to begin with this extraordinary uh, detective story? Uh, probably at the beginning, I think. Um, oh, what a what a neat probably, idea! <laughs>
1: um, which could be two things. I could either do it historically and take us back to Paleolithic times, or personally, which takes
0: me back really to the you know my own discovery of, of yeah. Protection. Let's start with you because I'm always interested, and audiences always like to know how do those of us that wade into these weird and murky waters. How do we get embroiled in this in the first place? Why do we stop being sane, ordinary people who worry about the stock market and our kids and our house payments and all that? And why do we delve into these mysteries that really in our lifetime may not have answers? Well, I mean, um, I think that's that's too long
1: a discussion for me. I, I mean, it started when I was a child and continued on
0: through um
1: into adulthood. Well, Louis,
0: um, don't 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 skip over that. Those are the most interesting things. I I used to ask, you know, guests, you know, when was the first time you looked around and realized that everything you were being taught was not correct?
1: Well, I think the, the answer to that question specifically was probably the age of around 11. Wow. Um because prior to that time, um all the kids on the block were interested in everything from ghosts to UFOs to Astral projection, dreams, you know, sensory deprivation, all sorts of things that relate to sort of altered states of consciousness. And this was, I thought, the norm. And it, and it wasn't until I got to uh, high school, um, as you would call it over there, that I, that I realized that actually, you know, I'm actually on my own, and one or two of my friends might share an interest, but everybody else thinks you're completely weird.
0: Well, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, Why, why do you think there's that break point? Why is it that as we're growing up, we're interested in everything, and then there's this point where you realize you're kind of on your own, and they're all interested in other stuff. Well, um, I I think it's just a, a case of growing up, isn't it? I mean,
1: you know, when you get into you know high school, you're starting to think about other things. You know, whether it be girls, whether I was it be just gonna say girls, life, of course, girls, uh, girls. You know, or you know, the way you look, um, what you've got to learn to, to do something in life. Um and you know, mad things, weird things tend to sort of go out the window. Um, unless you're a diehard like I was, and I just continued them on. Um and I started reading books on UFOs, pulp paperbacks by the likes of Brad Steiger and John Keel and Brinsley Lepre Trench, people like this. Mm. And I just gorged those down, basically. Um, And then the next one in line was Eric Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods. Of course. Um, And I think that changed everything because he wasn't simply talking about, um, you know, weird UFO experiences or strange things that have happened, but he was actually posing very important questions. Um, And these were you know, we have all this ancient technology um, in these countries, beautiful stone carvings, um, you know, cultures that had knowledge that they weren't supposed to have that we only reinvented in more modern times. You know, why did they have this? Is it possible that there was either direct or indirect contact, you know, with some kind of extraterrestrial source? And even though I think that quite a lot of the the... the the, the different themes, subjects he talks about, you know, everything from the Nazca Lines in Peru you know, to the Great Pyramid Stonehenge, the Moe statues of, of Easter Island, even though I am firmly believe that they were created by, you know, flesh and blood human beings, mm-hmm. um, you know, the idea that there's a connection between architecture and cosmology and outer space And some kind of contact with, um, you know, cosmic beings stayed with me. and Some some
0: kind of information that was not terrestrial that was transmitted to our great, great ancestors.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, in my early years, I probably thought that it was quite physical. You know, that UFOs came down here and did their thing and left. But as you get more mature, you begin to realize that that's probably a little – little bit naive in many ways, and that it must be something more subtle. And I developed eventually the idea that quantum entanglement was the answer to a lot of these mysteries that, you know, through the idea that two particles can be, you know, connected, no matter how far away they get, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it be either sides of the universe um, and that this connection exists outside of normal space-time, that is it not possible that this allows not just for the act of telepathy, but also cross-communication um, you know, throughout the actual cosmos as a whole?
0: Oh, my um, God. But that would yeah. mean there's incredible billions and billions and billions of signals. How do you single out one interesting idea to implement well, on Earth exactly out of the incredible true. data stream? That's the,
1: that's the big question. I mean, obviously, there are lots of people on the planet that claim that they channel aliens, uh, and some of them probably do, and some of them, some of them probably don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, 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 you know, who represents you, and, and you know, and who is right? Who would you go to to actually, you know, say, right, okay, we want you to send a message to, you know, Cygnus or whatever. Um, can we trust them to send the correct information? Can we trust them to get the correct reply and of course this is a philosophical debate which I think could go on for decades if not hundreds (laughs) of years but I think the answer that I eventually came to was it's not down to an individual it's down to patterns patterns is the most important thing patterns that are recognized um, amongst you know different groups of people in different parts of the world I mean go back to let's say close encounters of the third kind You know, what was going on there, you were seeing the same patterns and ideas coming up through individuals and cultures, whether they were, you know, urban cultures or whether they were indigenous, all the way around the world. You know, they all came up with the same musical notes. They were all coming up with, you know, this this idea of the Devil's Tower, like, you you know, and, and why was that occurring? And it could only have been, if we look at it from a scientific point of view, from something like quantum entanglement, a knowing, a knowing of something so
0: strongly that you have to commit it to reality. Um, and that, well, wait, that- wait, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, because in that film, one of my favorites, by the way, the, the, the thing that comes out toward the end is that only certain people resonated to this theme, And the implication was they were somehow different. They were special. They were genetically different. They were, in other words, the message wasn't for everybody. It was only for that select audience. And they got it and they all wound up at Devil's Tower, or a lot of them did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: And, you know, then you have to say to yourself, well, how can we translate that thought into science? And it's obviously something to do with genetics, ancestry. Uh, and the abilities that we inherit, you know, through that ancestry. I mean, quite clearly, you know, not everybody's a super psychic. You know, so you—is a let me,
0: Yeah, and, let me ask a couple of questions before yeah. we get into the, the nitty gritty of that idea, that model. Because there's a couple of other possibilities. Did you ever see I, I really don't know because I haven't had a chance to, to delve through your incredible writing and I need to. But do you dismiss the idea that we are not the first, that we're – this civilization, this 21st century civilization is heir to unknown ancestors that have extended back tens if not hundreds of thousands of years that were high-tech civilizations, and what we're getting is the distillation of their best knowledge, whether it's through physical archives or through some kind of channeling or etheric connection – But, in fact, we're not the first, so we're simply borrowing from our great-great-grandmothers on this planet to do these amazing things that appear to be impossible yet to our technology. Like, we can't build the Great Pyramid. There's no way we, 21st century technology, can build the damn Great Pyramid.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I'm hearing what you're saying, and I think the answer is clearly, yes, that's a possibility. But what I want to talk to you tonight about is… You know another possibility about how we originally gained technology. Uh, not necessarily that that it was all ours. You know there is mm-hmm. a possibility that some of the knowledge was coming in from outside. But going back to the whole idea of you know this cross communication, you know, the use of of entanglement, you know to convey knowledge and information across vast distances of space. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean it makes sense really because you know, what is the nearest star? Is it, what, three three light years
0: away? 4.3 like light years away. Actually, That's slightly exactly. less because Proxima Centauri is a little closer than Alpha Centauri, but right. it's, around,
1: it's around four light years. Okay, well, look, that means that if we send a message at the speed of light, it takes four years to reach its destination. Now, however we achieve that doesn't matter at the moment, but that, in theory, is mm-hmm. the, the fastest means that we can do it. And that means that even if that message is received. It takes another four years for the return. You know, So if we say hi, somebody else takes another four years to say, yeah, hi back, basically. And quite clearly, the universe is going to have created some kind of shortcut mechanism.
0: Tell you what, hold uh, it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Andrew Collins, not to be confused with Colin Andrews. Both are friends. Both have extraordinary research and tales to tell. And we've got Andrew Collins to tell his on the other side of midnight tonight. We shall return. Midnight. Be sure to catch our complete live show every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight eastern, for a full three hours of this kind of exploration. And be sure to visit the Other Side of Midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special Radio with Pictures guest page simultaneously. see our hardworking producer, specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show. Why? Because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. Would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique radio pictures feature, please visit TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast. Receives Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kintia posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show the best way to ensure that is to join club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too and if you don't know already when i drop by open hailing frequencies you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5 literally the most exclusive club in the world Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Back on this Sunday night on the other side of midnight. We're keeping an eye out on the news feeds to see what's going on on the other side of the world with those kids being rescued from that labyrinthian cave in Thailand just before the monsoons begin in earnest.
2: And they either have
0: to stay for several months or they drown. I mean, this is not this is not uh, out-of-town triads, This is for real. So Send a prayer, send good thoughts, keep them in your focus of your field. My guest tonight, back to Andrew Collins, and a most extraordinary idea. So you're kind of thinking that Allah, that ancient science fiction story about a Dirac transmitter. Remember that one? I think it was Van Vo who wrote science fiction about a Dirac transmitter based on the work of that very famous physicist, Dirac that there was literally a mechanism to communicate that would allow you to communicate simultaneously with trillions and trillions of receivers spread across the universe. The only problem is you couldn't separate the signals. Every signal would be like a huge humongous party line and everyone would be talking at once. So figuring out the signal from that data stream would be essentially impossible. Is this kind of what you're thinking? That there's this etheric communication system that certain people tap into, regardless of what culture, what era, what time, what planet, and then they then copy these ideas for their own cultures?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow. Um, I mean, the way to imagine it is that I don't think it's a case of you know individual extraterrestrials sending messages, you know, on a one-off, and you picking up you know, something going on in your mind like picking up a telephone. I don't think it's as simple as that. I, I think that it comes through a system which is beyond time and space. It's on a subatomic level um, and that it's impacting the brain um, on a very subtle level. And I think that it, it, it's not about receiving an individual, you know, message with, you know, hi, my name is Smurgle and I come from the planet Zog. It's not about that. Mm. It's It's about... Directed information, which is picked up on a collective level by a particular um, population—you know, in our case, the human population—and um, as I said, it's a case of recognising patterns, patterns which emerge in different parts of the world um, and at different times. Okay, um, let
0: me get let me get this straight. You just said directed communication, meaning that uh, Orba on Zog... Yeah. is is got a technology that can transmit this information. Yeah, I, that, yeah, I there think... has to be there has to be an intention and they have to know we exist and there has to be a targeted audience otherwise it yeah. would be lost in like the direct thing, it would be lost in the noise. Well, I I think it's it's more a case of sending out a
1: broadcast, a broadcast with, you know, with incredible you know, terabytes or gigabytes whatever it is of data that's coming out probably constantly you know in other words it's there to be picked up and received at any time you know it's just a case of being on the right frequency to do so in other words it may well be that this information is coming through to us all of the time we are just not recognizing that it's there to be picked Mm. up it could be anywhere not just within our
0: and minds, but So, so wait, wait, this is interesting because when Sagan talked about the great encyclopedia Galactica, and he and Morrison at MIT were you know tinkering, you know, how you'd send radio, that kind of thing, and you'd tune into this Galactica encyclopedia through old fashioned radio telescopes and all that. You're taking this to a much higher, more sophisticated level in that you're saying that someone has the ability and the intention To broadcast these roadmaps for how to build civilizations to a universe. And they're tailored so certain species, when they're at the right time and the right place and have the right questions, they will pick this up and will internalize it and make these how to manuals their own?
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And I think that, you know, what comes with this is what we would call, you know, geometry, mathematics, um, cosmology, you know, where to look for in the sky for answers. Um, and I think it's been going on since Paleolithic times, and I think that this brings us very, very nicely. Well,
0: wait, wait, wait. It, if if, if you're right, then we've got very, very ancient galactic civilizations, or shall we say cosmic, because this would not be limited just to this galaxy. Yeah. No, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be kind of like a continuous broadcast where any – sentient species, when it gets to a certain level, can tap in and resonate with this information because they will all have very similar problems to solve, ways to live. In other words, it's not just the Paleolithic. This could have been a continuous broadcast since time immemorial. It's just maybe in the Paleolithic, we got smart enough or tuned in enough to tune in and pick up the signal. There you
1: go. That's exactly it. Okay. all right. That's clear. Exactly and, you know, it's like, I mean, we, we talked about Tabby's star, and I'm sure you've, you've talked oh, about it. Yes.
0: One of my star. favorite
1: stars these days. And, uh, I mean, uh, you know, just for the, the listener, maybe just a brief introduction. You know, I mean, this star has always been there, obviously,
0: and we've been aware of it. Well, not um, always. It's an f main sequence. It's several billion years old, yeah, so it's I been like there I mean, always for a very well, long
2: time. But as in terms of humanity, humanity, it's always been Okay, okay. But, but um,
1: now, I mean, in 2015, we noticed that the, the Kepler Space Telescope, which had been looking in that direction, in the direction of Cygnus and Lyra, looking for, you know, exoplanets, planets that, that were similar to Earth, Um, had managed to recall these very strange light um, variations, dips in light from one of the stars it was looking at. And bear in mind that it was looking at over 150,000.
0: And one of those had dipped as much as 20%, which is unheard of for a normal star. Unheard of. Can't happen. You know,
1: and I mean, it was doing something very strange. And obviously... Uh, it attracted the attention of, of the astronomers be- beyond the, the Kepler mission. Um,
0: and well, the, the actual computers looking for eclipsing, you know, planets orbiting stars—they they threw this out because they weren't programmed for the yeah. incredible anomalous light curve. It Correct. took real human beings. It took real citizen scientists right. like 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 you and me to look at the light curve and go, "Holy cow! What the heck is going on there?"
1: Yeah, absolutely, and. Um, it was uh, put to one of the astronomers, um, Tabitha Boyajan, to try and sort of work out what the hell was going on. Uh, And she did a paper in 2015 uh, that went online at that time, published the following year. Very cute paper with a very cute title. What was the title? Come on. um, (laughs) WTF. There's the WTF, which obviously has, you know, more than one interpretation, but um, the WTF, in theory, we're supposed to be um, the, the where's the flux, the mm-hmm. flux, in other words, where's the light gone uh, yep. in this star. But, you know, I like the fact that it's a, a double entendre as well. At least. Uh, you can use it in other ways, which we don't need to go over at the moment. No. But very I mean, high if, imagination oh, th- I mean this, this brought about a lot of focus on this star even before the publication of, of, of her particular paper. Uh, And it was another astronomer, uh, Jason Wright of um, Penn State University, who said, well, look, you know, we've we've been studying what SETI uh, should be looking for as far as um, communications from other stars or what uh, we should look for if there is something in the way of the light of the star, some kind of alien megastructure, uh, some kind of Dyson sphere or Dyson swarm that's actually put in place to extract, draw the energy, the, the, the stellar energy from the star uh, and then rediver that away for use on some kind of home planet or maybe, you know, spaceship somewhere or whatever.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so, of course, this story broke the news in October 2015. Um, And, of course, it it, it became, uh, you know, a worldwide viral news story overnight. Um, You know, was there an alien megastructure out there in the Cygnus constellation, um, which is where the star is? I mean, since that time, an awful lot has happened. Um, Some good and some not so good. Um, I mean, the not so good is that the current uh, theory is that it's all just dust causing the, you know, the star to... To, to dip its light, and that there's a much longer secular uh, dimming going on that's been recorded in photography. Yeah, you know, talk start. about
0: that because that was the second huge surprise with Tabby. Not only did you have these interruptions in light over a few days or weeks that were dipping down like 20 percent, but you also yeah. had going back over a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, records I mean, that show that Tabby was not behaving normal. No,
1: I mean, it, it was a um, uh, an astronomer by the name of Bradley Schaefer, um, and he, he thought to himself, "Well, hold on, you know, we, we've got archival plates showing that area of the sky that were taken." And, an and hang on, hang on.
0: For, for the digital generation, we should you know translate plates mean ancient glass photographs on glass plates yeah. that are stored in professional observatories around the world, Harvard and England and Germany in and Germany. South Africa and whatever.
1: Yeah, and um, I mean, there there was a whole set of these plates. I mean, basically, what what, what happened was that from about 1890 onwards, every part of the sky was photographed on a regular basis. Uh, This formed an archive, obviously, that that remains to this
0: day. It's still there. I mean, it is digitized, I believe, today. But what gradually. Not all of it. They're, they're working on it, but it's a huge, huge collection, and it's oh, not the only observatory yeah. with plates, yeah. you know, photographic archives going back cent- uh, uh, yeah. almost a century. Well, yeah. and well, anyway, he, he, he examined the plates that showed
1: the area of sky of Cygnus, um, you know, with obviously Tabby's star there, um, and he found that it had been dimming constantly since the – the, the you know the, the, the taking of the first plates in around 1890, hmm. all the way down through until I think the the 1980s I think was when the last one. So basically a hundred years worth of of, of plates showed that the light was very gradually, you know, a, a few bumps here and there, you know, a few rises and falls, but generally the light was had been falling
0: over 110 years. It was actually 110, so it's ninety. See, see the thing I find weird is for this audience who's familiar with some of the numbers we talk about, if you look at the averages, the error bars, it turns out that it's dimmed by 19.5%
1: in that 100 years. Okay, okay. I didn't know that, to be honest, but um, I mean mean the the general average is something like 1.5% per year um, and you know, obviously, that's cumulative of course. And um, I mean, it continues to do this today. That's the thing. I mean, there are various uh, telescopes, you know, on Earth that are still looking at this star on a virtual daily basis. I mean, you've had Bruce Gary um, on as a, a, a guest. Now he's got mm-hmm. a observatory in Arizona, uh, and he's taking readings of the star every night. Um, and not just on visible frequencies now, but on multiple frequencies, you know, different wavelengths, um, spectrometry he, he's doing, you know, to try and um, read the frequencies of the star, um, you know, on, on, on different colours, on, on infrared, on visible, on blue, and green, etc., you know, to, to, to find out whether they all are changing at the same rate or whether there's some variation. And the importance of this is that this, is, this tells us whether what's causing the dips, whether they be the short-term dips or the, the long-term secular dips, is physical, you know, as in a solid occulting object, as they call it, yeah. or whether
0: it's nebulous, as in gas or dust. See, or I'm not like so sure that that's exactly what we're seeing. I mean I, I had this discussion with um, um, Gary uh, Sacco the other night. Oh, really? in his model. Yeah, he was on the show for three hours, and he talked oh. about his model and published in the ABSO and yeah. all that. Yeah. The assumption, because they're seeing this disparity between blue light and red light, is that we're looking at fine dust, because fine dust scatters blue light more than red light, right? Yeah. Okay, but that's not the only physical mechanism that can give you a blue light change. Well, of course. no, I know. But, but the only model that people are talking about is dust. And the problem is the dust that is being proposed to explain these light curves is so fine, so tiny, that the star, the F-type star, the star slightly brighter and heavier than the sun, middle of its age, you know, main sequence star, normal average star, slightly brighter than our star, it would blow this fine dust out of the whole tabby star solar system in a matter of months. And yet it keeps recurring and recurring And that's not possible unless it's being replenished. Then you have to say, well, wait a minute. What weird, bizarre physics mechanism would replenish exactly the kind of fine dust to give you the blue light changes that are being seen? And my proposal is it's not dust at all. It's glass. It's refractive index of glass that shifts red light and blue light into a spectrum, and it's artificial structures made of glass. And nobody has thought of this for some odd reason. Um, well, they're, they're, they're talking about ice crystals, but not glass, certainly. Um, but, yeah, but ice I mean, crystals at that distance would melt. They'd evaporate because, of uh, well, yeah, uh, Gary's model says that this stuff is orbiting about 3 AU. And yeah. if you look at the temperature curves for so things at 3 AU, ice will not survive at 3 AU around an F-type star. It'll go away. Right.
1: But they are talking about it being on an incredible elliptical orbit. That's the thing. You know, and they reckon that the, you know, the the part of the the, the orbit that that swings round furthest away is that Mm -hmm. which is within sight, Mm -hmm. you know, between us and Tabby's star. But anyway, look, um, you know, here's here's, here's where I, I see it at the moment. I mean, yes, there are lots of it. And quite clearly, you know, that's what they are seeing i mean whether it's natural or manufactured is, is, is a, a matter of debate but the bigger question here is what we might call the elephant in the room you know and the elephant in the room is the case is the fact that what is causing the dust something's causing the dust like mm-hmm. if, if i go up into my attic
3: again you
2: know, if it's dust around, i don't i don't think there's it's loads dust, you, dust, you, you think it's dust.
1: okay there. and quite clearly that's, you know, that's not the thing that's causing the dust. There's something else in the attic causing it, and that's me. And I think it's the same with Tabby star. You know, quite clearly something is happening, either on the star or around the star, that's causing it. And I think that the the, the more sceptical astronomers at the moment say that, oh, well, it must be comets coming in and breaking up and creating dust, and that's what's doing it. That, that's mm. what they believe at the moment.
3: Mm-hmm. So I think
1: something more than this. I think the star is in trouble, um, and the, the 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 star, which as you said is is a an F main sequence star, is shedding its mass in in a manner which normally only occurs to a um, uh, something like a red um, you know a um, uh, red
0: giant. Uh, the, a normal star going up the evolutionary curve and turning into a red giant, swelling up, getting cooler. That's what the yeah, giants do. Okay. Not, not a red Okay, star. well, uh, Andrew, if this is true, how come the damn spectrum is absolutely, I mean absolutely, absolutely, absolutely normal? Well, There's nothing abnormal about that damn spectrum at all. Zero, zero. That's what makes it so fascinating because well, the star looks normal.
1: I know, I know, but it's doing strange things, things that it shouldn't be doing. Yeah, but you see, if, 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 the, if the strange
0: things were coming from the star you'd expect abnormal spectra from a star in upheaval, a star going energy changes, a star is going through radiative envelope, reposition, whatever technical term you want to use. This, to me, when I look at the Tabby story, it says the weirdness is in orbit around the star. The star doesn't even know what's going on around it is going on around it. Well, you know, I'm not sure about that. I,
1: I, I mean... You know, whatever way you look at it, particularly if you see some kind of, you know, extraterrestrial intelligence involved, um, you know, whether it be mining, um, you know, the dust, whether it be mining occulting objects or whether they be uh, mining, you know, the actual, um, you know, energy from the star itself, you know, whether it be the the, the hydrogen, helium or even the the heavy metals um, of the star. Quite clearly, there's something happening with the star that shouldn't be happening, and because it's a little bit like you know our own sun suddenly start doing weird things. It shouldn't do it because it's too young. It's just a normal star, and it's and it should not be doing those. That's what's happening with Tabby's star, and obviously the astronomers explain all this by saying, oh well, it's just you know it's just comets coming in from you know the, the the equivalent of their Oort cloud. And they're just coming in, breaking up. They're causing this dust. That some of the dust is hanging around, and some of it's being well. There is a little.
0: There is a little red dwarf star, which is close to Tabby in the sky, about one point nine five arc seconds, one nine five again, folks. And it's eight hundred astronomical units away from Tabby.
3: Mm.
0: And at that distance, it could gravitationally perturb a cometary or type cloud of. Little burgy bits into deep swooping orbits around Tabby. So, yeah, there is the possibility. The problem is our technology is not adequate to really find out yet. We no, need big uh, space telescopes
1: to yeah. figure this out. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the, when the James Webb telescope finally gets launched, then it will see a much prettier picture of, of Tabby star and could help us dramatically. But I think it has been put back to what is it, 20? 2020. Is it?
0: It's now. It's, it's like it's like fusion. It's always just you know around the corner. Tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me well, of that line from I, I Alice mean, in Wonderland. You know. Other, the, now, the other the other you know,
1: important the, the, the other important thing about Tabby's Star is that um, as myself and um, the uh, technical engineer Rodney Hale have worked out, we published two papers on this that are up online. Is that the dips in light? seem to be following certain sequences of mathematical patterns. Yes. Uh, Quite clearly, this is something that Gary Sacco has also realized, and and Gary does know about work. We've had a a certain amount of communication as well. Um,
0: And this was something... Your ears must have been burning because we were talking about your paper just the other night, and the thing is, Andrew, the mathematical patterns you're finding and that one other author... Who was on a blog and with an anonymous name and all that, and I hate that because if you if you have a good idea, you should stand with your own name and publish it, not some pseudonym. Two separate groups: your group, you know, you and and, and Hale, and this other guy, Michael, have both figured out mathematical patterns in the Tabby light curves that are equilateral, i.e., tetrahedral messaging. Yeah. And that is – that's impossible unless we're dealing with intelligence.
2: The universe doesn't do
0: this naturally. So to Mm -hmm. me, the dust thing is a canard because people are not being imagined enough to realize that glass, big things made of glass – remember, the moon is half glass. So glass in space is a major construction material, which by the way is 20 times stronger than steel. You knew that, right? Glass formed in a vacuum is incredibly high tensile strength.
2: Yep. If, okay. if,
0: if you're a bunch of aliens wanting to build something big around a star, you'd build it out of glass for all kinds of reasons. And when you look at it from far away, the glass will refract light differently from an salted occultation. It'll give you that blue scattering look, but it's not dust, it's glass. Mm-hmm. And somebody somewhere is going to figure out a way to test this idea. And Bruce Gary said to me the other night, he says, Well, damn it, why don't you do it? And I said, well, in my copious spare time, maybe I just will. Wrong. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll
1: be honest. I've not heard that theory before, but I shall certainly discuss it with a few people. Talk a, talk um, about
0: it with your friend yeah, Mr. Hale, because Mr. Yeah, Hale I, could do I, the I, mathematics I look, yeah. in, in, in 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 half an hour and tell me if I'm nuts. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, seriously. Well, yeah. But hold on. It's still nearly, It's still not even six o'clock in the morning here.
0: Let's close this <laughs> out. Um, i would okay, I would so, wait till after nine to call him anyway, okay. so back to we'll, back to Tabby because tabby yeah. see to me this set of coincidences, which is building, as I said in my opening, we've got Tabby now, something really solid, mysterious in the direction of Cygnus. We've got Amuamua coming hmm. by the way from the general direction of Tabby, you know, who cares if it was from Biga? Stars move and well, in three hundred thousand yeah. years, you know, where would Tabby have been? In terms of 300,000 years at the velocity we saw from Oumuamua, reaching from there was tabby in roughly the right direction. I don't know. I haven't done the calculation. Then we've got your work connecting humanity, Homo sapiens, with some incredibly ancient archetypal longing for the direction of Cygnus, and the coincidences are piling up, and I don't like coincidences.
1: Well, exactly uh, and there are more because just this week, um, a neutron star in the constellation of Cygnus that goes under the name of Cygnus X3, which I've written about
0: extensively. Oh, my before. God. Um, it's doing something? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, it, it, no, no, hold, it, it, it hold it there. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. I can't miss this break. Otherwise, Cynthia will kill me. And I don't want to be killed. There's too much interesting stuff coming about. My guest this morning is Andrew Collins. We're talking about tabby and potential terrestrial connections. Who are we really? What's going on in the direction of Cygnus? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
4: The other side is midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support a broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. There, On the other side of midnight.com.
0: Welcome back on this Sunday night. Let me turn that down and turn that up. And there you can hear me. My guest this morning is Andrew Collins, and we're ranging really far afield. But it's my gut instinct, and I've been at this a little while, so I kind of trust my instincts. There's something bizarre in Cygnus and Lyra that we're trying to be told about. Someone's trying to send us a message up to and including maybe a physical thing, a muamua, that came zipping out of the dark in that direction, went around the sun, and left with more energy than it arrived. Now, if that's not a message, I don't know what it could be. So, Andrew, pick it up there, please. Okay, well, I think I
1: better take it back one as far as Cygnus X3. Okay. Because, I mean, going back to the 1980s, there were a number of underground particle facilities that were working on the idea of proton decay. They were trying to recall the decay of this subatomic particle called the proton. Obviously, well, no, yeah. I mean, that's basically what they were doing. Yeah,
0: one of the fundamental classical yeah. uh, nuclear yeah. particles. Yeah. And protons, the- electrons, and neutrons. And neutrons break down, yeah. so you've got protons and electrons, hadrons and leptons, and all that stuff, yeah. so. Yeah,
1: they, they, they were trying to do this. I mean. You know, I I suppose um, it was like a sort of um, a proto form of the the particle accelerator uh, facilities that, that we have today, like CERN and whatever. But anyway, for them to achieve the results that they wanted, they had to either do it inside mountains or deep underground within, you know, old mine shafts, and the reason for this was that it would stop any stray cosmic rays reaching the experiments and messing up the results, okay, because, you know, that's what cosmic rays generally do. They, they, they mess up the results of a very fine experiments on a subatomic level, um, which is obviously why CERN, for instance, is deep underground itself. But what they found was that they were getting this interference of these particles inbound from somewhere that were rising and falling on a cycle of 4.8 hours. Hmm. And it didn't take them very long to really... So
0: Hang on. The, the, the cosmic rays coming from space appear to be modulated with yeah. a period of 4.8 hours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it didn't take them long to work out where they were coming from.
1: Um, and this was a... Astronomical object called Cygnus X3, very clearly in the Cygnus uh, constellation. Uh, and it's actually uh, around 26,000 uh, light years away. And
2: it consists really of, that far away?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wow. consists of, a, um, uh, of what appears to be a neutron star. Um, and some have suggested that it's a, um, a black hole. Um, it could even be a strange star, you know, made of, of, of you know, strange particles or something like that, as predict- predicted as well.
0: Yeah, some folks are talking about quark and stars it, it, and it, things it like that. it spins
1: round this um, object called a Wolf-Rayet uh, Wolf, a Wolf-Rayet star, WF star, and you know, drawing its energy from there and you know, sucking it in, taking it in. Um, and they're in this constant motion together, and it, and it produces this 4.8-hour cycle. But the thing about Cygnus X3 is that it's not just you know, cosmic rays that are coming from it. There is gamma ray bursts. There's X-rays that, that are, are recorded down here as well, and also massive radio flares, and these occur every couple of years. Um, it will go dormant for a period, and then it will burst back into life. Mm -hmm. and that's occurred actually this week. You know, we've had a massive burst from Cygnus X3, the first since, I think, April 2017 has just occurred. So why is all this important? Well, the the fact is that these cosmic rays that come from um, Cygnus X3 are unique. They're the only ones with one other possible exception that are so powerful that not only are they able to come directly from salts without being affected by any um, stellar uh, magnetic radiation, you know, out there in space, you know, or by the sun's radiation or any other field, but to hit us directly, which means they're probably not charged, they're probably neutral uh, particles, um, and to pass through the atmosphere, pass through solid matter, down to a depth of something like two to three hundred meters before finally breaking up and creating secondary particles called muons, which hmm. are these that are actually re- being recorded by this particle facility.
0: So, uh, is the solar system in a some kind of beam, directed yes. beam yes. of these of these high energy particles coming yes, from Cygnus yeah. X three? I mean,
1: basically, what's happening is the reason why they are you know hitting us. Um, so strongly is because one of the gun barrels of the star, you know, one of its relativistic jets, you know, these massive jets of plasma that, that, that are ejected along the line of the axis of the star right. uh, for anything up to sort of 5 to 10 light years, uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, ridiculous how powerful and how large these, these jets can be. One of them's pointing directly towards our solar system um and it's projecting these gamma rays cosmic rays x rays so strongly which that we are able to register them in the way that we are
0: now so we're so we're looking at the uh, Cygnus X3 system basically pole on we're looking down on the north
2: pole yeah, or up
1: at the yeah, south pole yeah yeah now here's the thing Carl Sagan in his book, The Cosmic Connection, um, which I think came out recently, I'm going to say, about 1972. Is that about 73, right? 73, 73. Okay. Um, he proposes in there that human evolution um, is affected. Mutations occur through the cosmic rays inbound from neutron stars. Now, he doesn't actually name any specific star, but he, he suggested in there very strongly that mutations occur, jumps in evolution, you know, when cosmic rays pass through our body, um, perhaps, you know, during the time of reproduction, you know, within eggs, sperm, uh, and that this causes um, a mutation to occur in subsequent generations. Sometimes it's for good, sometimes it's for for bad. Uh, And that this has been occurring for hundreds of thousands of years. Bearing that in mind, let's go back to these unique cosmic rays that are coming from Cygnus x 3 By the way, they're, they're so unique, so strange, that they were actually even given their own name. They were called Cygnus. Mm. You know, almost as if they, like they were a, a particle in their own right. Um, here's the thing. Rays pass through us all the time. I mean, neutrin- uh, neutrinos, other types of cosmic rays... You know, they pass through our bodies, they don't affect us, and they don't mutate us, we don't, you know, have three heads, you know, you know, every time our, our mother gives birth or, and, you know, a woman gives birth whatever, it doesn't happen. It's only on very special occasions, you know, within human evolution that mutations occur that, that, that thrust us onto the, the next level, if you like. But deep underground... If these particles are reaching down to that level and they are among the only cosmic rays that reach down there, you're dealing with a different type of particle. One that, when it creates these secondary muons, is something equally different, something that could affect our bodies in a different way. In other words, go back to the Paleolithic times, Think about our ancestors deep within these caves for long periods of time, You know whether they were living, whether they were doing ceremonies, rituals, whether they were painting the beautiful cave art that we, that we see in different countries. So most of the time they would
0: be in darkness. Now, wait, wait, wait. wait. Yeah. Are, you think, are you saying what I think you're about to say? <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat>
3: that this so. is
0: an information-modulated beam of high-energy particles?
1: Um. It could be. It has been suggested, yes. Yeah. Specifically in connection with Cygnus X three. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um and So by but, metonymy you're saying the reason that this incredible explosion of cave art occurred deep in caves, it's only in the caves where the signal to noise is where you can resonate and hear the information being communicated.
1: And not only that, but the mutations can actually take place underground. Um, as opposed to out in the open air yes absolutely but also
0: Hmm. as you know full well you can actually see cosmic rays well we know the astronauts to and from the moon yeah when they close their eyes they would see serenkov radiation in their eyeballs yep yep exactly um because i mean this occurs out
1: in space we are not aware of it down here but if you put yourself into a darkened environment for an hour. The chances are you will see at least one or two cosmic rays during that time,
0: even at sea level, even on Earth.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. I've done it many times. I've I've done experiments where I've I've got a whole group of people in a darkened environment. Mm. You know, we've blocked out all light completely, and I've just said to people, you know, right, just you know, we can talk, do whatever, but for the next hour, I just want you to to be aware of the fact you might see in your eyes, whether whether your eyes are open or closed, it doesn't matter. And eventually, some of the group will see them, and I've seen them, and they're like flashes they they are just like flashes in your eyes.
0: you know you just you just uh, something just occurred to me that someone should ask these kids in Thailand when they're all back what did they see when it was absolutely dark? Well,
1: yes, I'm sure that won't be the first question that people will ask them, but um but yeah um
0: and if if they see, get- you see kids are open to all kinds of they're in a whole new experience. It would be imprinted. It would be a memory, you know, part of that experience. Someone should ask them.
1: Well, no, I absolutely agree. And, and, and if they did see cosmic rays, the chances are they would only have come from either Cygnus X3. There is one other possible candidate that creates um, similar uh, particles, which is Hercules X1, um,
3: mm.
1: which uh, the Fermilabs uh, in their, you know, facilities uh, – recorded uh, some cosmic rays, which they believe came from that direction. But, I mean, the, these read about Cygnus X3, these things. I mean, there's a, there's a, I've written, there's a whole article that I wrote about it called uh, Cygnus X3, the cosmic ray question, uh, which you can find online. It's one of the first things that comes up for Cygnus X3 anyway. But here's the importance about this. Let's say that the cosmic rays from Cygnus X3 do help, to cause mutations in evolution. Mm. Now, we're 26,000 light-years away from Cygnus X3.
0: Now, that means that that has to be a star system on the edge of the galaxy because we're only 26,000 from the core. If you look tangentially, which when you're looking at Cygnus, you're looking at right angles to our direction to the center of the galaxy, 26,000 light-years puts this far beyond the stars that make up the constellation of Cygnus.
2: It Uh, puts it at the
0: edge of the galaxy. uh, Yeah, you've got to be careful, though. Remember, I mean, you know, I mean,
1: constellations are just gatherings of stars that are within our line of sight in a certain direction. You know, I mean, Tabby's Star, for instance, we know to be (laughs) 1,470 light years away from here. Give or take. So, you know, we're looking towards that. But beyond that, at a distance of 26,000, right years, is Cygnus X3, which by the way, you can't see with, with, with the uh, the naked eye okay. um, but here's the thing, and I said this publicly, uh, you know, many years ago, I said, if the, the cosmic rays from Cygnus X3 are affecting human, human evolution on Earth then what about, star, what about planets with life that are closer to Cygnus X3 in other words, somewhere between us here on Earth and mm. x 3 Surely, they would get a higher dosage of uh, cosmic rays, and it would evolve them far quicker than it would do life on Earth. Should we not be looking?
0: Yeah, unless in- it killed them. I mean, it's, at some point, it's, the radiation will not evolve anything. It'll just fry it. True,
1: true. But quite clearly, you know, in the same way that you have habitab- habitable zones of... You know, of solar systems, Mm -hmm. you know, quite clearly there are habitable zones, you know, where uh, 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 cosmic rays will also be beneficial as opposed to completely destructive. And it may well be that Tabby's star and the vicinity of Tabby's star is within that that zone, if you like, where the cosmic rays.
0: Well, how far away is Cygnus X1 in terms of direction? How many degrees from Tabby?
1: Um, not very far at all. It's X3, by the way. X1 is a black hole, um, which was the subject of a bet between Stephen Hawking and um, you know one of his colleagues about whether it was or wasn't a black hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, he said it wasn't. He lost the bet. Um, <laughs> but I think it was supposed to be a, something like a, the, the prize was a year subscription to Playboy or something, if I remember rightly. Some weird Cambridge... In joke or something, exactly. But then, yes. But what I'm trying to say, is but X1 see, if
0: if it's, if it, if if Cygnus X3 is too far away from Tabby in terms of line of sight, angular, di- uh, you know, dimension, but it's not. It, it it's could not. be out of the. How do we know? Do we know how I mean, wide but, the beam is?
1: We know this because it's within our line of sight. Anyway, I mean, we look. If we look towards um, Cygnus X3, the direction of it, just off within funnel, if you like, the the mm-hmm. the angle that's created by the projecting right. of the cosmic rays, Tabistar is within that, no problem at all. Uh, in fact, the scattering from um, the the jet, the relative the, the relativistic jet of Cygnus X-3, is considered to be something like uh, ten degrees. Okay. Uh, so it's quite wide. Um, you know, in other words, the scattering, if it's going to affect
0: us, it's definitely going to be affecting. Um, you know, Tabby Star as so well. So let me see if I get this straight. You're saying that this Cygnus X3 is emitting radiation in a beam from the north yep. or the south pole yep. of all of, of the heavy stars. That beam is intersecting the Earth. It's causing mutations. Yeah. It's powerful enough to be detected hundreds of feet underground, maybe yep. even a half a mile. Anything closer, any star system with planets developing life closer within the beam, like Tabby. Would be experiencing more radiation, therefore more uh, uh, mm-hmm. mutations. Yeah. Therefore, it might develop intelligence quicker than on Earth, even though the star is heavier and evolves faster.
1: Yes. Absolutely. Okay. That's exactly what I'm saying. And as I said, I said this publicly on several occasions. You know, in the past. Remember, I wrote a book called "The The, the Cygnus Mystery," of which the the main solution in there was human evolution was being affected by the cosmic rays from Cygnus, Cygnus X3. X-3. Okay. Um, now now these, these,
0: this beam is being modulated. You say in 4.8 hours.
1: Yes. Yeah. Which is exactly five times a day, by the way. So it's
2: exactly five times a day. So, so in you divide 24, it into 24. Yeah. It's exactly five. One fifth of. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's interesting.
2: Uh, yes, it
0: is. Very interesting. Yeah. When you say exact, I mean, how exact is it? Well, exactly. I mean, look, work
1: it out. Have you got a calculator?
0: Well, when you say it's 4.8 hours, is it 4.8 or 4.7953? Well, kind of
1: it is 4.8. Yeah. Um, I mean, occasionally you'll see it mentioned as 4.79, but I mean, mm-hmm. there's no, you know, the. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to work it out now. For instance, times five. here goes <laughs> carry the 24. one. <laughs> Twenty-four. There you go. So, uh, it, yeah. I mean, but anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. I mean, um, it's it's affecting us. It's coming. It's it waves of four point eight hours. Ah, and the other important thing is that those waves obviously increase. And fall based upon the proximity of Cygnus in the sky. Uh, That's the other important thing that was noted. By the way, I mean, you know, all this is not some New Age talk here. I mean, all of these were papers that were done in the 1980s about Mm -hmm. Cygnus X-3. And I mean, there is so much talk about this. I mean, there's. uh, You you might know uh, there was a guy called uh, Michael Telling, not uh, Telling, sorry. Oh, uh, um, a, a guy that wrote a book called um, Space-Time Transients, Persinger, Michael Persinger.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, he did a lot of work trying to understand what UFOs were. Um, you know, he believed similar to what I did that they were like these multidimensional, you know, plasma constructs that affected people's through their, you know, through electromagnetic fields and stuff like this. Well, he wrote a book called. Uh, space-time transients uh, with a guy called um, Uh And, um, I mean, he, he's Canadian. And he, in this book, talks about Cygnus X3 and shows patterns between the bursts of activity on the radio, uh, you know, the, the radio flares of, of, of Cygnus X3, which we know are accompanied by gamma ray bursts and X-ray bursts and cosmic ray bursts, an activity of earth changes such as earthquakes, volcanoes, um, really? stuff like that. He found real correlations? Yes, he did, yeah. And he wrote this in this book called Space Transcends, which if you haven't got, by the way, on your bookshelf, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Yeah,
0: uh, if you can send you a link, we'll put that up on your page for tonight for the archives, yeah. for the Club 19.5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would yeah. be a very important book to read in the it context is. of this it's conversation. it's an incredibly important book name is Michael Persinger, huh? Yeah, Persinger. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's probably
1: most famous for, for constructing, like, these weird helmets that, um, <laughs> you know, that, that put these electromagnetic energies into people's brains that cause them to see visions of aliens and stuff like that. You've probably heard of this.
0: I mean— I know there was an experiment at Harvard where someone tried to do that. I didn't well, know. Well, yeah, that's probably him. Ah. That's probably Michael Persinger. Okay, yeah, I mean, uh,
1: you know, he's a very clever, very interesting guy. I think he's Canadian.
0: See, um, I would wonder, in addition to the stuff we're looking at, radio and electromagnetic and gamma rays and particles and all that, I wonder about the torsion field uh, detection of something coming from this Cygnus X3.
1: Well, indeed. I mean, obviously, that's something that I've not looked into myself. But,
0: I mean, if you can speak to the right people... Uh, then, well I have a detector I oh. just need a right telescope and, um, and that's something to think about anyway yeah. we're, 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 we're losing time remember okay. we well, only look, have two hours So we're building a little. picture here and, and the picture
1: is saying to us there is something interesting going on in the, the Cygnus constellation which the mm-hmm. ancients going back as far as the Paleolithic age you know the cave artists recognised and saw in this star so What more is it about it that is of interest? And here's the thing. Firstly, as we visually look towards the sky and we see the Milky Way, Cygnus is where the Milky Way splits into two, caused through dust and debris in line with the um, the, the, the axis. of... Well,
0: we're looking down a spiral arm, so you're looking along the edge of the dust clouds yeah. that congregate yeah. Yeah. next yeah. to the B-type yeah. stars spiralling out from the yeah. galaxy. You can see this. It's called the it's called the Dark Rift
1: or the Great Rift or Cygnus Rift, and this has been seen as a point of entry and exit to the sky world by ancient cultures all over the world. I mean, whether it be in ancient Egypt, the Maya of Central America. Um, the, um, the 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 mound building cultures of um, north america
0: uh, really the- in, in ohio they were looking at the cygnus rift
1: oh my god yes i mean my mm. colleague uh, greg little uh, has been studying dozens of different mound complex and found that the cosmology associated with them relates specifically to two stars uh, sorry two two constellations one is cygnus the other is orion um, and that there is this Native American death journey that was accepted by dozens of different first peoples, where at death the soul would would make this leap of faith onto the Milky Way, reaching it in the the area of uh, Orion. but then it was believed that the soul continued along the Milky Way until it reached a fork in the path, which was you know quite clearly in the area of the Cygnus constellation, the, the bright star Deneb, mm. uh, the, the the brightest star Cygnus. And it would then meet this, um, this, this celestial being known as brain smasher or skull smasher, <laughs> which I know it sounds gruesome, but, but
2: it it's most sounds probably, like a, like
1: a character from a Marvel movie. It does. <laughs> but I mean, you know, there's good reasons for this, which I can go into, but, and basically what happens is that this creature um, either allows you to continue on into the entrance to the afterlife or you know the land of the dead or you're either reincarnated or your soul is cast into oblivion um, and thrown down into this monster this, this underworld monster which is seen in terms of a serpent or the water panther which, by the way, astronomically is associated with the constellation of Scorpio, Scorpius. But it's quite clear that that in Native American tradition going back thousands of years, that the entrance to the sky world was in the proximity of the star Deneb in Cygnus. And again, this is not, you know, me saying this. There are academic papers and books that have come out only in the past 10 years that state this very, very clearly
0: lot of intriguing coincidences with Cygnus. Well, it, it, it's more, I mean, we talk about
1: Gobekli Tepe. I mean, Quebec Tepe, when I first went there in 2004, which was just a few years after the excavations had begun, many of the big stones were only half uncovered at that time. and There was nobody there, by the way, when I went there. I mean, no one whatsoever. The local farmer came across to, to say hi, uh, but that was it. And I looked at the the carvings on the stones. I looked at the orientation of the, the different uh, stone enclosures, and I thought, what 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 do they mean? I mean, you know, I mean, it was almost like an alien mind had created this. It was so mm. different to anything that I'd ever seen in Egypt or Western Asia. And and the one thing that I realised from the the word go is that they seem to be looking towards the north, um, and not precisely the north, but just to the west of north, so north-northwest.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: I got the engineer, Rodney How to look at the orientations based on the survey map, which had already been done uh, by Professor Klaus Schmidt. By the way, he was the discoverer. He's the guy, of, yeah, the guy I can't yeah,
3: remember. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: mean, back dead, in 94, yeah. Uh, met him a few times, um, uh, you know, very decent forward-thinking guy. And um, And what we found was that all of these stone enclosures the oldest ones and most impressive and sophisticated were all pointing towards the same thing and that was the setting of the star deneb in the constellation of cygnus and that was really my first introduction to cygnus and and why it was so important to the ancient mindset and it was that that set me on a course of trying to understand you know why? Why? Why this star? And, and I found that it was there in many um, megalithic structures around the world, including those in um, in England. You know, places like Avebury, uh, mm-hmm. stone circles. Um, Did you look there- up
0: the work of uh, Dr. Norman Lockyer back in the nineteenth oh, century? Sec- I mean, yeah, very much aware of this. Right. Lockyer was the guy for the audience who was basically the first archaeoastronomer. And he figured out orientation of ancient temples based on stars that they would look at and then then the procession of stars that would change that alignment direction. Absolutely. And he was followed up by a guy
1: called Alexander Tom, uh, who wrote various books on the archaeoastronomy of megalithic sites in Britain. And it was Tom who first started to realize that many of these stone circles were orientated towards.
0: Say okay, what well, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Don't want to interrupt this. This is really cool. The coincidences of Cygnus. My guest this morning is Andrew Curry. Andrew Curry. Well, I'm thinking of Andrew. Andrew Collins. You're on the other side of midnight, and I will be back dizzily when we return. Yeah,
3: The other
4: side of Midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month.
3: 33
4: cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com.
0: Sunday night to the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, I'll get this correct, Andrew Collins, the famous writer, star in science, Andrew Collins, who has got this remarkable connection of data. I love real data. I mean, it's now really transcending coincidence. There's weird stuff occurring in Cygnus, the latest of which is Tabby Star, the earlier of which is something 26,000 light years away. Beating, resonating, modulating every 4.8 hours, sending a high-energy beam, which is exactly one-fifth of the rotational period of the planet you're listening to this show on tonight or this morning. I mean, what in the world is going on? Andrew. Yes, Dr. Keep going. Oh, We've only no, got half an hour. A question, Unless you so. want to stay longer. I mean, how can you how can you wind <laughs> yeah, this up in uh, half an hour?
1: Okay, look, um, what's happening? Well, I think that the the simple answer is that the ancients are recognising something that we are recognising today, and that's that there's something special about that area of sky. Um, and that whether it's to do with you astronomy, <laughs> with, with cosmic rays, whether it's to do with with extraterrestrial intelligences all of these things and more the ancients somehow realized that there was a something very special about that to do with cosmic creation to do with the origin of life, and the fact that in death we would return there we would go back to this place in the sky where they believed that we come from in the first place it's no coincidence that In virtually every country of the world, Cygnus is some form of bird. It's a swan, it's a goose, it's an eagle, it's a hawk, it's a vulture. And the commonality between all of these different um, sky creatures is that they are all symbols of the soul in a form of a bird. In other words, at death or even before incarnation, the human soul is seen to either be transformed into a bird to make that journey from one world to the next you know or it's accompanied by a bird on that transitional journey into the afterlife so that cannot be coincidence i mean the swan for instance you know the swan would seem to have been a primary symbol of the soul and its transformation into the afterlife for at least twenty-four thousand years and on the islands of Scotland, even to this day, it's believed that the swans that migrate northwards each February and March carry the souls of those who have died in the last year. And that's that's in, even in the present day. People believe that. You know, It's part of the folklore. And these ideas have been there, as I said, for at least 24,000 years. And what I show in my new book, Cygnus Key, which is the one that's just come out, is that these ideas may well be even older and that they may well have been inherited from an earlier form of archaic human known as the Denisovans. Um, And these were a population that occupied most of the Eurasian continent, but particularly from central into eastern and southern Asia, From around 800,000 years ago down to about 40,000 years ago, when we first turned up in the area, and this evidence has come from human fossil remains found in a a place called the Denisova Cave um, in Siberia, uh, that has also revealed the most extraordinary evidence of high technology going back at least 60 to 70,000 years ago, including something which is known today as the Denisovan Bracelet, which your, your listeners need to check this out. I mean, just type it in and look at the Denisovan Bracelet. It's a most beautiful, fashioned, um, bangle-like uh, piece of
0: jewellery. Okay, we of- need to then direct people to go to theothersideofmidnight.com, click on uh, the graphic for uh, Andrew tonight, yeah. sign there in the sky, I will take you to the guest page, to Andrew's page. Scroll down to Andrew Collins' items and Radio with Pictures, and it's one, two, it's the third item. This Denisova, it's
2: gorgeous.
0: Yeah. My God, it's gorgeous. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it shows
1: evidence of sawing, advanced polishing, but most importantly, drilling. There's a hole oh, in it yes. that, that, that's drilled so, with, with such a fast speed rate that is comparable to a modern-day drill. Now, how do we know that? Because of the feed rate, you you can actually look with the microscope at how
0: fast. So wait a bit, wait a minute.
3: Wait a minute. That and, 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 in, in, in
0: that hole that we're seeing in the middle of the bracelet, you're yeah. saying that in the hole going through the bracelet, there yeah. are little grooves That's like it. on a like, like like on a screw. Yeah. And by looking at the angle, the slope of the grooves, you can tell how fast the drill was pushed through the material to make exactly. the hole and exactly. it's incredibly fast by exactly. contemporary standards there you go, exactly and um, you know the same kind of drilling was found by uh, oh he's a friend of mine in Ohio I can't, uh, Chris Chris, um, Dun. uh, Christopher Dunn oh, yes, yeah. published in an Analog back in the 80s That's there right. were drill holes, if you look at the spirals he got a feed rate because he's, he's, he's a machinist, he knows how to yeah. drill holes and big things he said the feed rate was like 10 to 100 times better than any contemporary technology back in the 80s. Yep, yep, yep. Well, I mean, you know, Chris... So, uh, Andrew, you just answered my question at the top of the show. Do you think there were more sophisticated, higher-level technical cultures on Earth before us? And this bracelet is another example.
2: Yes! Yes
0: is the answer. Okay. But, I mean, the Denisovans...
1: Here's a few who facts. were the? Who were the? I've almost never heard of the Denisovans. Well, you're going to hear a lot more about them. I mean, we didn't even know they existed until 2010. Let's point this out. Um, here's here's just a few simple facts. Firstly, they would seem to have been extremely large, uh, possibly as as tall as, as seven seven and a half feet. So you can even describe them as giants. They were very, uh, if you can imagine, some of the largest wrestlers you know, of the WWE, uh, that's the sort of frame that we think that, the, that, the, that at least some of the Denisovans were. That's point one. Secondly, um, evidence of, um, of of bone needles being found uh, in the Denisova cave on the same level as Denisovans suggests that they were wearing tailored clothing as much okay, as— Okay,
0: hang on, hang on. Where were these people? If we only heard about them in 2010, where did anthropologists, archaeologists find their remains, and where do they live, and what do they eat, and what kind of culture, and what other stuff? And I mean, this is so new that even I've only heard the name once or twice.
1: Yeah, well, okay, the, just just the the pronunciation is Denisovans. That's the correct. I mean, okay. you hear people say Denisovans and stuff like this, but that, right. that's not the correct way. And the, the
0: name comes from where they're archaeology yeah, it, was found it's, it, it's a cave called the the, the
1: denisover cave Oh, sorry the Denisova cave
0: and where um, is it
1: it's in southern siberia it's very close it's in russia but it's very okay. close to border with kazakhstan china and mongolia oh. um, and it's in the alte mountains and the alte mountains have long been considered possibly Almost like a, a, a place of origin of a lot of technologies. Okay, origin.
0: you have a map. No, item number that's one right. in your first, in your section. Image. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Ha- have a look at that. And oh, there's there's the, there's there's the Denisova cave. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Wow. Go ahead. It's um
1: yeah. I mean, it's a very interesting area. But what's more important is that. I mean, the, the Denisovans would seem possibly also to have, have been riding around on horses. Um, there's evidence of, of DNA, horse DNA, and also horse bones from the cave. Now, again, it's not me that's suggesting this, this has been...
0: Wait a minute, you mean they were they were equestrians? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. they
1: tamed I mean, horses before anybody else. I mean, you know, we're talking about people that were incredibly sophisticated, very much like, the you know, the Mongolians, for instance, of you know, the the medieval times.
0: How old is their culture supposed to be? Are we talking Upper Paleolithic?
1: Yeah, um, well, even earlier. I mean, obviously, Upper Paleolithic begins around 45,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's called Upper Paleolithic is because that's when we enter the picture. We start doing modern things. We start creating modern technologies, modern types of stone tool technologies start being introduced um, and those are carried all the way forward to the Neolithic times. Um, and
0: so that and is don't when we get the art. It, don't forget that incredible art in the French caves.
1: Well, in, uh, absolutely. The, the, the art as well. Okay. One,
0: one yeah. thing, Andrew, uh, Robert, yeah. you have to mute. Thank you. I'm sorry? Oh, sorry. I'm talking to Robert Morningstar. So continue, please. Yeah. Um,
1: but the Denisovans were doing all of this before even the beginning of the Upper Paleolithic era. Do we have They're a date? They were sophisticated. They we, an Andrew, 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 we have
0: a little time left. Do we have a date? Uh,
1: 60,000 to 70,000 years ago. They were wow. around uh, from about 800,000 years ago.
0: Wait a minute. We now have remains from 800,000 years identified with this culture?
1: No, 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 no. No, no. The, 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 the DNA genetic evidence tells us that, that they were around 800,000 years ago. The actual archaeological remains that are coming out date to roughly between forty and 70,000 years ago.
0: That's a huge spread.
1: We also know that they, they, they interbred with modern humans and that many current, Human populations, particularly in Eastern and Southern Asia, carry the ancestry of Denisovans today, and that there are many genes that have been passed on to modern populations.
0: So were they Homo sapiens, or were they
1: Neanderthal? uh, They were none. They they were completely separate. I mean, they were related to the the, the Neanderthals. They're related to us, but they're something entirely different they're an extinct human population that we've only just found out existed but i must state this this is really important to state this is that what the genome they sequenced the genome of the denisovans in 2010 and what they found is that their mindset could be different to ours because they have genes relating to autism that may have given them a different perspective on the world. And once that is introduced, we're into oh a
0: whole my different ballgame. Oh, That means they might be receptive to cosmic signals. Exactly. And also that they had savant-like
1: mindsets that allowed them a connection, a communication with the other world.
0: How the come this world. isn't headlines in the New York Times four inches high? I mean, this, this is well, an unknown group, a third triad of you know, ancient humans that we've never, ever really heard about?
1: Well, no, there, there, there's stuff out there. I mean, you know, there, there's docu- if people want to watch, there's some nice documentaries on YouTube that you've watched about Denisovans, that, that Nat Geo did a good one.
0: Andrew, um, I follow this stuff, and this is kind of new to me. <clears throat> Can you imagine how it's new to 99% of the population? I
1: understand. I understand.
0: And, I
1: mean... Uh,
0: I mean, there are, there are ways to make discoveries and make publications where you don't really make a lot of noise, so it slips under the radar.
1: Wow. I mean, it's out there. It's out there. But we've been on to them, you know, I say myself, and the, the people I work with since at least about 2012, 2013. And okay. we we realized immediately how important they were. I mean, they're the key to answers to everything from the Ananarki to the Watchers to the Nephilim human angels, I mean, all the stuff I've been writing about for years. Well, they could
0: be our ancestors who came back to Earth from Mars. Well, it's possible, I mean, but... Because they're big. They're they're giants. I mean,
1: we don't know what stage of evolution they achieved before they disappeared. I mean, if these ones in Siberia had achieved that type of technology,
0: were there other... No, 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 no. 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 The idea would be they came here and then they lost everything. You know, they they basically devolved when they hit the Earth's atmosphere. I'm being kind of facetious, but in other words, you're not going to find a developing terrestrial civilization. You're going to find in our model super civilized beings that are descendants of people who came back to Earth who were humans, but they then died out because they couldn't make it. They couldn't survive in this incredibly harsh environment compared to what they knew. Well, it's possible, but, I mean, the thing is, we've got the
1: genome of the Denisovans, and we can see that they are related to human, you know, to to, to, uh, Homo sapiens. They are related to the Neanderthals. You can see a progression, an evolution within their genome of, of where they've come from and where they're going. The fact they've developed their own physiology, their own genes, for instance, to, um, to to be able to exist out in high altitudes uh, for long periods of time, like the Sherpas and Tibetans, mm. that seems to be where they got their genes from, from the Denisovans. Um, they also had genes relating to uh, existing in in extreme cold, um, so they could bulk up. And um,
0: you're making a case for a low type Mars with thin atmosphere, cold temperatures, et cetera. Et cetera.
1: Well, I mean, it's all possible. I mean,
0: Well, we need this, data. We need more data.
1: There's something, there's something in it, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, people are interested, as I said, um, your new book's The Cygnus Key. And the reason why it's called The Cygnus Key is not simply because of what we've been talking about, but it seems as if the Denisovans gifted us ideas in civilization and cosmology around 45,000 years ago. Yeah, you know, when they were essentially dying out quite literally, and that they their legacy involved this knowledge to do with Cygnus relating not just to do with cosmologies but also cyclic time um, and the importance of a cosmic origin in the stars actually came from the Denisovans. This is what I say, and that they so very- their
0: own history, their own folklore their own oral histories say. Look to the heavens because that's where we came from.
1: Yes.
5: Okay.
0: All right. We're on the same page here.
1: Yeah. But also, because the Denisovans were so large and could be considered to be giants, we have to start thinking about the giant skeletons that are found in many of the mounds. I proposed in 2014 that these were Denisovan hybrids that had survived through So at least the first millennium BC and were there as the elite within the so-called Adena culture. Um, This work that I was doing with my colleague, uh, Greg Little, who, by the way, I've I've just finished and we've just submitted a new book. that's going to be called Denisovan Dawn, which is almost a part two of our work. Wait a minute. Denisovan,
0: what's the second word? Denisovan Dawn. Dawn, Dawn. Dawn. Okay. Like Rising Sun. Okay. Great name. Great title. And, this is all going to be about the influence of the Denisovans
1: in North America, you know, and, and how the the American Genesis
0: came about. No, wait, wait, that's a huge leap. They're found in Russia, southern Russia, and you now got them in North America. How'd they get here? Yes, yeah. There's many um, Native American
1: First Peoples who have Denisovan DNA, um, and these same peoples talk about these pre-existing. Uh, groups of of individuals that existed even before they came along, known as the Thunder People. Uh, And the Thunder People were said to be giant birds who could shapeshift into human form um, and to uh, create families. um, uh, And they would do this by removing their feather coats. And quite clearly, we're talking about shamans here. And I think that the Thunder People is a memory of the last of the Denisovan hybrids, um, and that these Denisovan hybrids were of extreme stature, possibly seven feet, seven and a half feet tall, and that they eventually end up becoming the, the elite groups that were in control of the Adena culture during the first millennia BC. And it's their bones, their skeletons, that are found in the Native American mounds all the way across the United States.
0: Hmm. I mean, this is such – You tell us how to get the book. We have it listed on the other side of Midnight. It's in your um, section. Well, the, the, uh, there are the, the, there, the, three called,
1: books there. It's called The Cygnus Key, the, uh, and the subtitle is The Denisovan Legacy, Quebec to Tepe, and the Birth of Egypt. Uh, it's available from Amazon or Barnes & Noble uh, or any online bookstore, or you might even get it in your Books A Million or whatever it is that you have in the local mouth. There are copies around. Cygnus Key.
0: Wow. Cygnus Key. I mean, again, what are the odds that we have Tabby winking at us? And and you are positing a connection between Earth and Cygnus, and some kind of conscious link. I mean, to me, the simplest would be visitors, ancient ancestors, the ancestors of the Denisovans, perchance stopping by way of Mars before they get here.
1: Well, I go back to what I said in the earlier part of the, the program, and that's, I think it's through consciousness. I think it, it's, a, it's through deep knowing, uh, you know, that if any communications are coming to
2: us.
0: Now, see, the problem, very- Andrew, with that model is
2: it's very, very, very hard to prove. You know, well, you can
0: speculate, but what's our, you know, you've got great genetic data. You've got a genetic tracing here, which is wonderful. But proving that the, the connection of information is not by physical transmission, but through some cosmic consciousness link, that's going to be damn hard to prove. Mm, no,
1: no. Now, I mean, the, the, the genetic it? science is there, the archaeology is there. Um, I mean, this is mainstream stuff. This is this is this is where it's going, I think, at the moment. And um, I, no, I don't think there's anything here that within the next ten, twenty years will not be confirmed.
0: Well, but how do you confirm physically a non-material transmission?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Um, As as I said, I think a lot of it's to do with patterns. I don't think that you can look towards any one individual and say, well, they're in communication with with an extraterrestrial intelligence from sickness. I I, I don't think it works like that. It's it's not just about a one-to-one communication. It's about patterns of communication that you know if everybody starts looking in the same area of the sky and starts orientating their monuments to the same spot that pattern is important you know if everybody starts building pyramids around the world that's a pattern and we we, you know and if everybody starts putting the same cosmic numbers the same mathematics the same geometry that's a pattern you know and these patterns you know, build on top of each other and you have to start saying, where do they come from? How do we get this knowledge? And I think that what myself and some of my colleagues, people like Robert Bouval, you know, I know he's thinking along similar lines, um, is that, you know, this So is Robert thinks God. that it's non material transmission of yes, information. He yes, hmm. he does. I mean I mean quite clearly he, he doesn't you know, look towards sickness, he's looking towards a riot.
0: See, see, to me, but, and I, 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 we don't have a lot of time, so I want to get some ideas on the. Can you stay past the top of the hour? Because we got to hit Gobekli Tepe. To me, yeah, Gobekli yes, Tepe yes, is, yeah, is, 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 is is the key. So you can stay. Yeah, yeah. Super. Fantastic. Okay. The key here is to try to reconstruct the thread of evidence, the chain of evidence. You're making extraordinary claims, and you know, Carl, extraordinary claims yes. demand extraordinary yes. evidence and all that. I think at Gobekli Tepe, we've got something that's not you know, airy-fairy. It's real. It's solid. It's stunningly different. And I want to spend the next hour after the top of the hour talking about Gobekli Tepe because physically what was being done there is unique on the planet up to and including these hammer-headed things that are positioned geometrically in the center of these enclaves that tell me we're dealing with something at a physics-slash-consciousness level that might actually feed into your idea. Right, well, it does. It
1: does feed into my idea. Well, we, we
0: have, we'll have an hour to go through all that. So we've got these guys. By the way, do we have links? Do we have actual papers besides your book to Denecevian's
1: Dines, the, the, the The simplest way of saying it is
0: Denezevians.
1: Denisovans. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Denisovans. That, that's the correct way. The the geneticists who first sequenced the genome said, "What should we call them? Let's name them after the cave. Let's call them Denisovans." that okay. That's so. That's what they called
0: them. Okay. So we got these people suddenly appearing, or not suddenly. You say genetically, they can be traced back eight hundred and some thousand years. Yeah. But there's no extant culture. I mean, there's no cities or. Temples or mounds or? Well, I mean, these these people were advanced. They probably had their own
1: houses, their own buildings, all the myths and legends of the giants of the area of the Alte Mountains. Talk about them creating the first irrigation channels, the first bridges, the first stone houses, the first this, the first that, the first music, by the way, as well. Um, And... I think that they were constructing um, you know, dwellings, houses, as early as 60,000, 70,000 years ago. But these were probably built on the side of mountains. They, for some reason, would seem to have favored very high altitudes.
0: And if This is like, sounding so eerily like they came from a place where there was little air and they had to live inside. Uh, it's, possible. it's possible. Well, think of it. Yeah. What you're describing – are people that aren't happy with sea level on Earth, right? Yeah, well, I mean,
1: we can't say that all Denisovans, were are living at high levels, but this is certainly the genome of the, what they call the, the Altaic, you know, Denisovan.
0: Okay. And now, we, uh, we've got on your section, we've got four more items, I think. Yeah. Um, four pendants, we've got um, tablets, we've got, well, let's go through as much as we can till the top of the hour. Okay. And then we'll pick up on Gobekli Tepe, which is a gold mine of something. So right. let's start with number four. After the pendant, right. you okay. say the swan well, pendant alta. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, these, these swan pendants have been found extensively. I mean, there's at least 15 of them discovered at this site called Malta. Um, M-A-L apostrophe T A, And this is on the Angara River, um, just to the west of this huge inland sea known as Lake Bacow. And this settlement is very advanced. It goes back at least 24,000 years. And the archaeologists that found these pendants associate them not only with the earliest forms of animism and shamanism in Siberia, but say they represent the idea of the soul taking the form of a bird, in this case a swan, to reach an afterlife that's associated with the directionality of the swans migrating north and south each year. Um, and that at least five of these pendants were all found deliberately orientated north-south to show mm. directionality. Um, and in other words, what we've got here is the earliest evidence of the idea that the soul either transforms into or was a, a bird before its incarnation, and that it then travels somewhere to enter into a land of the dead or a sky world or an afterlife in the form of a bird. And this is something that's very common amongst many shamanic cultures, particularly in Central Asia, particularly in Siberia, even to this day. And we find it amongst civilizations like in Egypt, obviously the bar. Okay, and the-
0: hold, it, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. This is a great tease for Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Andrew Collins, and we're talking about... A whole new species of humans humanoids where do they come from they like to live at high altitudes and inside mountains I mean this is very curious you're on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland and we shall return <laughs>
3: Hello,
5: fellow Club 19.5ers. This is Chris, your friendly neighborhood, other side of the midnight podcast creator. I wanted to pop in right quick to tell you about the new club perk we just set up this week. We've got a new live chat server. We set up our very own Discord chat server this week, so all of you can get together and chat with each other and to Richard and the Bridge Crew. What I hope you will enjoy and take advantage of is the fact that now you will be able to ask your questions of the guests during the live show if you don't want to call in. I know I've had a question or two in the past, and well, if I made it up to the 2 a.m. hour, I just didn't want to be on the radio since I was shy. So we have a chat channel just for guest questions. And if you find it hard to stay up at all for the show, but have a question you would like asked, then go ahead and post it to the channel. Questions will be read out to the guest for you. So you will get your answer as time permits. You're welcome to join the chat server at any time. To find the link to the server, please go to the other side of midnight.com and click on the club 19.5 member benefits link in the left column. Be sure to log in first. You'll find the link to the chat server information page there. It's important that you follow the directions on that page. So I'll be able to get you into the club 19.5 group as soon as possible. The only club 19.5 members have access to your special chat channels. So I will be verifying everyone that comes in to be sure you are a member. Otherwise, you'll get stuck in the red shirts group. And we all know what happens to the red shirts in Star Trek, don't we? So don't be a red shirt. The chat server runs on anything. If you're connected to the Internet, you can access the chat server. So join us all in the server, and let's get the other side of Midnight Community together and chat. But wait, you say you are a member of Club 19.5? No problem. Click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left column on the other side of midnight.com. And we'll see you there.
0: back everyone to the other side of midnight one hour to go if you want to call in and ask andrew about all this amazing information i mean this is this is really stunning you've got to get the cygnus key because it could be the key now if you want to do that let me give you the phone number you know it by now or you should 917-889-8802 917-889-8802 you can talk directly to andrew um, by the way, I want to apologize to Robert Morningstar. When Andrew initially said he could only do two hours, I'd asked Robert to come on and talk about Thailand and a few other things, and we'll put that conversation off until another morning. But I, I can't interrupt this conversation because we're just getting to the good part. We've got real solid data now in the Middle no East,
2: pro- in no Turkey,
0: problem, southern here. Turkey, just no across problem. the line from uh, from uh, Syria. And there's something astonishing that was uncovered in, in the 1990s, in 1994, I think, by a German archaeologist called Göbekli Tepe, which means in um, in uh, Turkish uh, something not very sexy. I think it's potbelly hill or something. Andrew, is that correct? Well, actually, that's not quite right. I mean, it it's actually means the
1: hill of the navel. Um, you know. As oh, in...
0: so there's that's a deeper meaning, maybe.
1: Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. God. Okay. Yeah. And a navel is obviously, you know, the point of beginning of life. Um, yes.
0: No, and, that's much more significant than
1: potbelly hill. I mean, I don't know who came up with this stupid idea about it being potbelly hill, but I mean you ask any Turkish person what gobek means and they will say it means navel. It means that you know, the the, the, the navel of the body. Hmm. You know, I mean, quite quite clearly it also relates to a particular area of the body and that's, you know, the, the
0: the belly, but it's the
1: navel. That's what it means.
3: Hmm.
0: And human beings are identified with their navel, their origin points, their connection to the mother. That's it. And, and the mother could be seen as the cosmic mother. You know. Yep. In other words, yep. No, no, cosmos. no. This makes much more sense. Okay. So, layout yep. for those who have been, you know, sleeping under a rock or in a Thai cave. By the way, we have no new news on the on the situation of the kids in Thailand. So, as soon as we get something. Hopefully before the end of the show we will give it to you, but I don't see anything coming up on my screen, so maybe they're holding off or maybe it's raining. Anyway, if you were in a cave and you hadn't heard about Gobekli Tepe, Andrew, lay out why this is so phenomenal as a discovery.
1: Well, we're talking about at least 18 to 20 different enclosures uh, that consist of these stone you know, circular or elliptical stone walls with uh these huge t-shaped stones you know standing stones megaliths um that are like the you know the, the like a clock face facing towards a central area uh, within these enclosures where you have these two huge twin monoliths that tower anything up to 18 and a half feet in height uh, when I say 18 to 20, um, I'm, I'm talking about all different shapes and sizes here. I mean, uh, the, of the larger ones and the most sophisticated, uh, there are probably about five or six. Um, but there are at least a dozen or so smaller structures. And they are all built between about 9,500 BC and 8,000 BC. And um, they're built on a mountaintop. In southeast
0: Turkey. Um, no, wait, when and- you say mountaintop, do you mean a real mountain or just a hill? Yeah, yeah, yeah No,
1: well, it, it's a mountain ridge. It's it's a southern extension of the Anti-Taurus Mountains um, okay. that run through from the Armenian Highlands all the way down to southern Turkey, and they it's built on there. But basically, what you've got is an area of around um, 300 by 200 meters that. Where you've you've got all of these structures that were that were built actually on the bedrock, and then, as each one goes through its um, useful life and is abandoned, it's then covered up, and either a new one is built on the side of that or on the top of it to create what you might call a layer cake mm. of activity.
0: Classic place- Middle Eastern tells where they build yes, and build and, exactly build and build and build. Is. Okay.
1: And it's and, and this this layer cake reaches a height of around 45 feet mm. um, of about at least three different levels of um, of temple activity. And as I said, the oldest of them go back to 9,500 BC. The youngest about 8,000 BC, when the site was finally uh, abandoned. But the important thing about these enclosures is that the the pillars are covered with the most beautiful carved images. Of creatures of the natural world, whether they be large cats, whether they be snakes, insects, birds, vultures, you know, uh, flamingos, other, uh, even possibly even a dodo. The dodo is is represented there. What? Uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a flightless bird of which the the closest form of it would oh definitely God. be the dodo. I mean, this is something that I show in my book *Gonkabektepe*. I compare one yeah a side by side of of a, of a dodo seated and oh you know, my one of birds there and it, it's
0: it's virtually identical so back then the dodo was not extinct
3: well maybe. absolutely
0: yeah of course. Mm. Yeah, they had every reason but i mean so the big, these pillars these these um, these engraved pillars they're pristine because they were buried that's right for yeah. almost ten, twelve thousand 12,000 years yeah it becomes a time capsule you know wow. i mean quite clearly they're all
1: not absolutely perfect because They've had the weight of thousands of tons of, 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 of stone debris and earth that was deliberately put on top of them.
0: Now, how do we know that? How do up. we know
1: they were deliberately buried? Well, because they, you know, they were. They, they were deliberately buried. I mean, to, to complete the occupational mound, it would seem as if the idea was to just cover them over and build a new one. That's what they were doing. Now, why would you do that? Well, I think you have to look at it in terms of decommissioning. Uh, a decommission. or or procession maybe. Um, well, procession does come into this, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But um, it's more a case of blocking off the influences and building something new. Um, you do it with Hindu temples. You even do it with Christian churches. I mean, you know, if a sacred building
0: is decommissioned, the Mayans right. did it, the Aztecs did it. You know, cultures around the world would kind of. Yeah seal off something and then start new absolutely i mean
1: the, the maya for instance in central america did this i mean w- when they uh, decommissioned one of their uh, you know their temples or pyramids they would cover it over and build something on top of it deliberately to try and you know, re- you know revive that energy but also create something new at the same time so uh, I mean, uh, it's there in Egypt as well. I mean, many of the, the, the classic temples, the pyramids, are built over earlier structures that existed prior to the dynastic age. And it's there at Gebekli Tepe. That's exactly what they were doing. I don't think there's anything too strange about that. Uh, I mean, some of my colleagues, you know, point out the fact that the whole site was suddenly del- um, uh, abandoned around 8000 BC. Why did they do that? Well, there's there's two reasons, perhaps. One is that there could have been some kind of cataclysm or, you know, some celestial event that said, right, we've got to end this and start something new, perhaps in another part of the ancient world. But the other important thing is that during this time that Gobekli Tepe was up and running, we had what was known as the Neolithic Revolution. And the Neolithic Revolution was the introduction of everything from animal husbandry to agriculture to metallurgy to the first beer, the first wine, you know, various other things. And this changed everything because the interest in the celestial objects that had been in place up to that time, certainly in terms of Quebec Tepe, suddenly switched from stars to the sun because the sun now became the most important thing in people's lives because of ripening of crops each year. Mm. So the cycles of the year became more important. So what you find is that the later structures at Gebekli Tepe are orientated not towards Cygnus anymore, but towards the rising and setting of the sun at different prominent points like the equinoxes and the solstices. Mm. And this is the beginning of that, and the reason for that, as I said, is very, very simple. You want the sun to return every, uh, you know, uh, uh, every midwinter or whatever it is, because you need it to ripen your crops each year, to 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 allow the crops to grow and to be ripened, and that becomes the most important thing in the lifestyle of the Neolithic peoples. And it seems as if the whole function, the purpose of Gebekli Tepe, had disappeared by around 8000 bc so people eventually said to themselves well look why are we doing this why are we creating these temples What you know what what's holding us to this spot and somebody shrugs their shoulders and say i don't know i mean you know and they said well look, let's move away and do some do our own thing and this is the beginning really of the spread of this neolithic revolution into different parts of the ancient world of course it goes westwards into europe eastwards into central asia southwards into uh, india and west southwest asia and egypt etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, and that the foundation point of this is unquestionably the area around gebekli tepe the 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 dna the oldest wheat that we still use today to make everything from bread to cakes to beer comes from the area of gebekli tepe Within sight, by really? itself, absolutely. Yeah,
3: mm.
1: yeah, I think it's, I can't remember how many different varieties. I think it's either fifty or
0: seventy. Now, if I understand well, correctly we, from what I've read, Gobekli Tepe was not a settlement place. There's no evidence of homes or houses or hearths or burials. Mm-hmm. It was a ceremonial place, kind of like Chaco Canyon here in the United States,
2: uh, which yeah. is up the street from me.
0: But the so, it was, so it was a place that people would migrate to come to celebrate something no, really important.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, they may have celebrated a few things there, but that wasn't its function. I mean, the, the function of Gobekli Tepe was as places of contact between this world and the next. Um, shamans, probably whole groups of shamans would be employed in attain, uh, uh, you know, attaining altered states of consciousnesses to project their, their minds, their consciousness into otherworldly environments to deal with the supernatural creatures and the, the 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 beings that they felt were responsible for cataclysms because prior to this time but prior to the construction of Gebetli Tepe there'd been a massive impact event in the world. We know it as the younger dryas comet impact mm-hmm. and it took place initially around 10,800 BC. And a comet fragments came into the the, the atmosphere. They broke up into thousands of, of, of small balls of fire, quite literally, that bombarded, peppered the Earth, created wildfires that just devastated complete regions of the Northern Hemisphere, with North America suffering the most, by the way. And... This blocked out the sun for an incredibly long period of time. We don't know how long—could be months, could be years. Uh, it triggered a mini So ice it
0: was—it was a kind of a natural nuclear winter.
1: Yeah. It, well, it, it was—you know—a a nuclear. Unless winter. it wasn't natural. Uh, well, it, it was—it was a comet. I mean, I, I don't think there's there's any doubt about that. Anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do
0: you know it wasn't a directed comet? And no. the reason I ask that. That's, Andrew, the reason I ask that is because the dating to me is incredibly suspicious. 12,920 years ago is exactly half a processional cycle. In the HD physics model, the physics goes nuts at these nodal transition points. We're coming up to another one. That's when all kinds of instability, including if you have high cultures, they kill each other in wars. They they go to war with each other over over nuts over 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 nothing it just seems to me the coincidence of time and the incredible sophistication of gobekli tepe because i don't know whether you're aware but robert schock was on on the show and i've known robert for decades and i asked him one key question when he was on the show talking about gobekli tepe and his answer completely confirmed what i've been suspecting i said do these monoliths these hammer-headed uh, megaliths do they ring do they resonate and he said yes and what that means is gobekli Tepe was a temple designed to raise the physics of the environment and everybody inside those enclosures so they could be connected via consciousness via a higher consciousness riding on the frequencies of those uh, ringing-like tuning forks to a cosmic connection exactly as you've just described. Yeah. Well, I
1: mean, you know, he's right. And what I show in the Cygnus Key is that all of the earliest and the most sophisticated enclosures, that's important to point out here, that the the biggest and the most sophisticated enclosures are the largest, sorry, the, the oldest. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that date to 9,500 BC. We're
0: looking at Enclosure D, I think.
1: That's the main one. That's the oldest and most sophisticated, absolutely. And I mean, that's directed to the Cygnus constellation, as as I've already pointed out. And um, it's 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 got these huge twin monoliths in the middle. Oh my and God!
0: To me so they're they were like- trying to communicate with Cygnus.
1: Yes, they're like stargates. These places are like stargates. I mean. Well, mental like consciousness like, stargates—not not physical, but you know, close to it. Exactly, they're they're stargates of the mind. That's exactly what they are.
0: So, see, the pyramids but, are the same thing. The pyramids resonate, and the reason I know is because I measured the physics with the Akatron. I can't wait to get to Göbekli Tepe and measure these you know enclosures and these huge tuning forks with the Akatron, because I guarantee you, we're going to see exactly the same resonant phenomenon i saw in central america in mexico and in other sacred sites
1: well i mean and you can do that now because bexie tape has just been announced to have the unesco status now um, and it's got this mm. beautiful new roof over it um, you can go and inspect the temples in fact if anybody's interested we'd, we do tours there the next one we're doing is in october if you want to come with us
0: Oh my God!
1: Yeah, all details on on AndrewCollins.com. There, um, yeah, I mean, we, we I mean, it, it's it. They the, the Turkish government have completely, um, you know, created this this almost like a Turkish form of Stonehenge there.
0: So they realize they've got a cash cow if they do it right.
1: Yes, and they wanted the UNESCO status. They're desperate for for tourism, obviously, with all the problems over the border in in Syria. Uh, and I think they've done a marvellous job. I mean, there's been some ne- negative uh, publicity about them using concrete here and there, but I- I- I've-, I've made inquiries that concrete has nothing to do with the site. It's on an approach road. It's nothing to do with oh, that's you know, good. the actual monuments itself. And, um, I mean, it looks wonderful. I-, I look forward to going back there in o- October. I mean, I've been there many, many times. As I said, the first time was in 2004, When, as I said, there was nobody there. I mean, they, you know, it was was just half excavated. That was like 10
0: years after Schmidt discovered what he got. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I've been writing about that culture. When he was putting the first spade in the ground at Göbekli Tepe, I was writing my book, From the Ashes of Angels. And what this suggested was that the area around Göbekli Tepe, which is southeast Turkey, was not just the Garden of Eden and the Cradle of Civilization, but also where... The Watchers, the Nephilim, the Anunnaki of mm. mythology uh, had existed and provided the gift of civilization to, you know, the, the peoples of Southwest Asia, you know, the, and that this was the Neolithic Revolution. It related to the whole story of the, the, the Watchers giving, you know, uh, the, the different gifts of, of of humanity, you know, inventions, um, to, to, you know, to the mortal kind, and I felt that this is the same story as the fact that the Ananarkai are said to have given agriculture and animal husbandry to humanity, and various other you know inventions. That all of these mm-hmm. things relate to these elite groups that founded the Neolithic Revolution in the area of Southeast Turkey. And what I also said is they must have come in from somewhere else. Now back then. My only possible direction of influence was Egypt, and I suggested they came from Egypt. Mm. I now realize, in hindsight, it's the other way around. It, well, well, it's yes, it is the other way around, to be honest. Yes, everything went from Gebekli Tepe into Egypt, uh, and that the same culture that had created Gebekli Tepe had set up settlements um, on the Nile. Uh, as early as about 8,000 BC, possibly even slightly earlier, a place called Helwan, um, which is just to the south of Cairo. It's within sight of the mm-hmm. Giza Pyramid Field, and that this is where the settlements were established um, and that these eventually created or developed the technology which ends up being used to create the Giza Pyramid Field um mm. uh, yeah, the, the, Well you understand you
0: understand, Andrew, the my model is the technology is the same. It's just it's just modeled in a different geometric form because the, the, yeah. the limestone tuning forks in this model, these things were resonant chambers, shaman or initiates or whatever would go in, and you could probably do it with the human voice, you know, choruses to get resonance oh, well, like look. ohm. Yeah. And look. this, this would open up their consciousness. And they'd literally be connected through the physics, through the torsion field to other consciousness, particularly if that consciousness was waiting to send them information.
1: Absolutely. And the other. This is
0: stunning. This is amazing. But but
1: I've not even mentioned to you yet that one of the greatest discoveries that's in the Signus Ski about Gobekli Tepe is that all of the earliest enclosures all have exactly the same geometry based on the three, four, five principle, and that they all are formed of ellipses which are specifically related to enhancing sound acoustics. See? Um, Bingo. my pattern with Bingo. All the early enclosures,
2: they were used to create
0: sound. Well, the sound was used to create the frequencies in the limestone, because limestone is the operative material. By the way, one of the possibilities—let's let's, let's uh, speculate. You know, for the next forty or so minutes, let's just kind of free associate. Why did the early, you know, forty thousand, forty-two thousand-year painters, the uh, Homo sapiens that suddenly produced this incredible art, why did they do it in the caves? Because the caves are made of limestone, just like those limestone caves in in Thailand, you know, tonight on the other side of the world with those kids trying to get out. Those limestone caves could have given birth to consciousness because the caves resonate to sound and that opens the mind and spirit and connects humans to the ineffable.
1: Yes. Definitely, yeah, and, and I don't even think it's it's just any any particular note. What seems to come out with this use of this three, four, five geometry is musical intervals. You know, the, in other words, the combination of two notes to create you know the perfect note chords, the, chords. The, you know, and the 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 two that come up again and again is the perfect fourth and the perfect fifth. Wow. The three-four ratio and the three-two ratio, which themselves are are inversions of each other.
0: See, it at is, this point, we um, should have a sound effect so you can actually play what this might have sounded like in those enclosures.
1: Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. But this, but these same, the same geometry is found in Egypt in connection with the Giza pyramid field, and it's also found in the Altai Mountains. The the, the there's a particular type of instrument that's created um, in the Alte region in Mongolia, which is just to the south of there, which is known as the commis. The commis is uh, a string instrument, a stringed instrument, and it has the neck of a swan specifically. The swan is very important to this. The body is the exact 3 4 shape of an ellipse and it doesn't matter what notes you tune it to. What's important is that you hit the perfect fourth, three, four tone. And it's said in legend that this information came from the giants, that they mm. themselves were given it by some spirit being, and that they then passed this on to humanity. Now, this, I can't, you can't make this stuff
0: up. You know what I mean? <laughs> It, so, so you're you're showing a, a link between the Denisovians, yeah, and the instruments, the technology, the ancestor communication of information, the genetic mixing, yeah. yeah, winding up with ultimately Egypt.
1: Yeah, I mean they created the first musical instruments, the earliest ever example of a flute or whistle, you know, that, that's got holes in it that deliberate. Comes from the Denisova Cave, the same level where the Denisovans actually the same occupational level of the Denisovans, and this makes it the oldest musical instrument, confirmed musical instrument anywhere in the world. There is one other uh, controversial flute that was found in a cave in um, uh, Eastern Europe, which they think may have been made by Neanderthals. Um, but, but, you know, certainly we're talking about among the, uh, the oldest musical instruments anywhere in the world. And the Denisovans were playing musical instruments. There's no question about this. And the legends tell us that they created the, the original notes, the, the original commas, uh, and that it's very specifically attuned to the musical instrument of the, of the perfect folff. The geometry of which is three, four, five, the Pythagorean triangle. Pythag- during the
0: break, during the break coming up, Andrew, can you find on your computer somewhere tonal yeah. examples of this so we can play it, so uh, people can hear I'll what stop. it sounds like? Let's try. Okay, because you've got about three, four minutes here at the okay. bottom of the hour. It. I'll try and find so it. So I'll I'll mute here and we'll be back with Andrew, who's going to try to find us some fascinating music from thousands. Tens, of thousands of years ago, that could have been an entry point with the right architecture to creating resonance in limestone, huge monolithic tuning forks that would have resonated in these chambers and raised, literally, physically raised the consciousness of the participants, the shaman, the worshipers, those connected.
3: Thank <laughs> you.
0: Support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, the other side of midnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recordings have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be uh, able to download the MP3 files directly uh, from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that members member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live. And this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests. And I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say, we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight Imagine a galactic or cosmic link Information transmitted through the ether Through the torsion field From millions or billions of consciousness Across the galaxy and across the universe And the way on earth to access this To kind of tune in Would be to create structures That would resonate physical materials, limestone, calcium carbonate, flipping that molecule as my friend Stan Tenen mapped out years ago. He's an engineer. used to work for Sony. And if you did it right and you built huge edifices with huge mass and you resonated them so they moved time and space in these chambers, the people exposed would have a literal conduit to a higher consciousness connection andrew it's an awesome awesome possibility and it's testable we can do it now
1: we can yes um i've, I've been looking on youtube trying to find uh the perfect fault I've, I've got something that's well 31 seconds long it says ear training perfect fault uh interval now uh I can, I can put this on if you want and just see what
2: happens. Let's if see if Skype will handle it. Okay, go ahead. Okay, well, I'll just play it now. <laughs>
1: I would like to have heard a tone, to be honest, but uh, I couldn't find that in the the time. But um,
0: but anyway, you get the idea. So this is this is astonishing because all parts of this theory can, in theory, be tested. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I can bring the acatron to Gobekli Tepe, and we can measure together the frequency, the resonant frequencies. Now, around the periphery of these elliptical enclosures that you say are model to amplify these tones, there are 11 or 12 other tuning forks embedded in the walls like they were designed to absorb the energy from the two guys in the middle and then make the whole chamber resonate.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that even in modern architectural design, the three the, the, the three-four ratio is still used to enhance sound acoustics, even to this day. I mean, I quote a source in the Cygnus Key, you know, and 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 it's an a you know it's a book that's actually for you know designers of theaters, and it could even it could be speaking about the stone enclosures at Göbekli Tepe. It, it 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 could be used by the builders there. Do you
0: know what I mean? It, it's, yeah, it's so accurate. yeah. So See, here's, here's okay. another idea. Here's another idea. The physics, as we've mapped it, goes up and down. It's modulated. You know what modulates it? The processional cycle, right? The processional cycle, literally round numbers, 25, 920 years, 26,000 round. And then you divide that in halves and quarters. It's about the geometry, the rotation, the precession of the Earth in the solar system, in relation to the other bodies in the system, the sun, in relation to the galaxy at different seasons. And if if this physics gets better and worse with the precessional cycle, and Andrew, that would explain why they buried it because after a certain point in the cycle, it didn't work as it should have. The physics wouldn't let it work. So they buried it for a time in the future when it would work again, and that time may be now.
1: Well, that's, that's, that's very possible, yeah. I mean, I, I think there, there were more practical reasons as to why they, they, they abandoned it. I think it was because things, things had changed. Things had moved on. People were no longer interested in the stars at the site. They were now interested in the sun and the agriculture. Um, yeah, but I'm saying
0: thing. I'm saying that there was a reason why they changed their interest because the physics of the earlier interest did not work. Well, it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's your whole being. But- it's life itself. I had a guest on last night, uh, Beverly Rubik, Dr. Rubik. We're talking about the biofield connected to this physics. We're talking about measuring human potential from you know tens of feet away with a gadget that looks like a tricorder that senses the life force in people. If that technology became obsolete, if the physics moved on, if it changed cyclically to where their temples, their structures, their resonant, you know, cathedrals did not work to elevate consciousness, of course they'd move on to something else.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But the other element that's important to all of this is cyclical time, because um, if you have a look at the, the pictures, um, if you Look at
0: um, number five on the list. Okay, back what to radio was, with pictures. Number five yeah. in your section, yeah, the so-called Malta plate, plate double plate. Now this is made of mammoth ivory.
1: um It's twenty-four thousand years old. Where was uh, it found? It was found at Malta, um, okay. which is the same site where these where the, the swans, the swan pendants, were found.
0: Ah. And it consists of a series of spirals around... Which, by the way, in Malta, they have these huge underground resin no, 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 no. and chambers and limestone. Rich is no? not the same
1: place. No, this is Malta in Siberia.
0: Oh, oh, I thought you meant Malta. Well, the island of Malta has the same kind of stuff too. Right, right. right. Well, yes, that's true. That's very true, actually.
1: Think about that, um, yeah. Yeah, but this, this is 24,000 years old, found at Malta, and the important about these spirals is that they each contain very specific numbers relating to celestial time cycles, whether it be to do with the sun, the moon, eclipse cycles, um, over very long periods of time. I mean, the, the, I mean, the, I mean and, and they generate these cosmic numbers, which we find in ancient le- um, literature, like in Vedic, Purana texts. Uh, but also in sacred architecture, like Buddhist stroke Hindu temples such as uh, Angkor Wat, Angkor Thom in Cambodia, Boro mm-hmm. Buddha in Java. Um, it's within cyclic time that's recorded in China, in Mesopotamia. It's there in myths and legends in Northern Europe. Uh, it's there on the Giza Pyramid field as well. Numbers like fifty four, one hundred eight, um, 216. 84. Yeah, and, and, and all of these these numbers are generated. And do you are know fairly- what
0: those numbers are? Well, are all tetrahedral, hyperdimensional torsion field numbers. They're the numbers they are, of the physics.
1: Yeah. Well, they, and they also relate to cyclic time, and and as I try to show in in the book is that the key numbers seem to revolve around 216 and 432. 432 in particular, and they relate to synchronizations between psych- different cyclic time, in particular to do with the processional cycle mm-hmm. that, that moves one degree every 72 years, yep. and also what's known as the triple Saros cycle that lasts 54 years. And it's the synchronization
0: between… Which is those- the synchronization of the, of the moon going around the earth in eclipses, the Sero yeah. cycle.
1: Yeah. And um, that's what these numbers are generated. But as you quite rightly say, they also are cosmic numbers in their own right that have other applications and implications. Well, they're the
0: same numbers. They fall out of the precessional cycle. Like, for instance, Andrew, what's the width of the moon? What's the diameter of the moon uh, it's- in miles? I can't remember. Is it, is it 2,160 right, yeah. miles. you think that's an accident?
1: Uh, I try not to think about it sometimes because it's very difficult to think, well, you know, that figure is there. How does it relate?
0: Because we're this? dealing with cosmic engineering on a scale that's so huge, most people can't even begin to wrap their mind around it.
2: Mm
1: it's there and you know I, I think we come back to this whole quantum entanglement thing that i was talking about earlier on that we're all linked to some, some kind of massive superconsciousness that relates to thoughts and ideas that are not just from earth and are not simply from extraterrestrial intelligences that may exist out there today
3: mm-hmm.
1: but all thoughts in all time in other words, they're outside of normal space and time. You know, I I, I tend to call this this super consciousness the mind of God, um, and I don't mean it is God itself, but it's like the mind of God. If you can think, or
0: of it. it could be the cosmic party line. You know, well, when you get at a certain that. level, you you tap into it. I mean, these these cultures, these yeah. architectures, Andrew seem to be designed to have allowed humans to tap into this cosmic. Consciousness. Yes, yeah. And, That's their and, purpose. Yeah, I mean uh, the pyramids Black- weren't tombs, they were designed to allow whoever to tap in with megalithic, huge structures of massive limestone that resonates to these frequencies yes. to the cosmic telephony system. Yes,
1: yes, I agree. Yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. So how long is it going to take for mainstream science to catch up
2: with us? <laughs>
1: Uh, maybe it won't.
0: <laughs> Come <laughs> I mean, on, don't
1: be negative. Well, I know I, it's almost like in the past we used to have something called the occult. The occult means hidden. That's all no, it means. And and why is it hidden? Because most people would never understand it. That's why it was hidden.
0: Or Not maybe we're doing most secret people. Secret hang on, hang on. Maybe those you know, those people at that time because the physics wasn't right couldn't understand it but as the physics changes remember the physics is changing to where we're going back to the consciousness that drove these people twelve thousand years ago Mm. we're one half cycle away and that's when the physics peaks again so i think our time is coming and a lot of people are going to resonate to this because it will feel right because it is right
1: Mm. yeah no i agree and and the processional cycle is, is very important it is exactly it's, it's fundamental it's crucial yeah it's it's half it's one half cycle precisely yeah. when that cataclysm occurred
0: exactly is that an accident no it cannot be an accident
1: no. and why are we why are we thinking about it now why are we why are we understanding it for the first time now and it's because it resonates across time across that processional cycle you know, I mean, the first the first person to suggest that a comet impact took place was Ignatius Donnelly, the U.S. Oh, comet- the
0: the Atlantis guy.
3: Yes,
1: yeah, he wrote the book Atlantis, the Antiluvian World, but he also wrote a book, a quite curious but quite incredible book called um, The uh, Ragnarok, uh, the Age of Fire and Ice, um, mm-hmm. and it's all about um, the a comet impact. I mean, you know, I mean, and he, he went from myths and legends and, and geology around the world and concluded that a comic impact had occurred, that ended, you know, the, 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 the the Pleistocene period, you know, around this time. I mean, he he didn't get it exactly right, but he was absolutely on the right track. And this, Hmm. this book was published in 1884, I think. And, um, We've very gradually built up a picture to do with this impact since that time, uh, and people like myself uh, and Graham Hancock uh, and you know other contemporaries have been trying to convince the world that this comet impact took place in our books. And now there is
0: overwhelming geological. Yeah, and, the, and the question and- I have is, was it just a random impact? No, the numbers tell me it was directed. Why? Because when the physics changes, when it peaks, you get more good and more awful, more more you know saintly people and more evil people. And evil people try to stamp out good people. And I'm thinking maybe this was a civilization intended ending event to basically kill humans on Earth, those that have this knowledge, to bury the physics forever. And do it in a way that had no fingerprints, because oh look, ma, it's just an average, normal impact. Oh, isn't it a shame? Tisk tisk tisk.
1: I obviously haven't got an answer for that, but um, I mean it's worth thinking about. But I, but all we know is it occurred. It definitely occurred, mm. um, and it devastated the world. And it lasted for several hundred years. That's the thing. It, this wasn't something that. No, when it
2: was a, like it was, no, I, it, was, uh,
0: it was like back in the 60s, 60s in the seventies sixties seventies, when Pollock and Sagan and others were working up their nuclear winter scenarios mm. and what would happen to the earth if we unleashed fifty thousand you know warheads on each side? it you may know, have been done before. you know human beings can be really, really, really bad to each other, vicious, horrible.
2: look at Hitler, yeah, no absolutely. But, uh, let me uh, let me
0: ask one question. Robert yeah. Robert Morningstar are, are are you with us on Skype? Robert? His logo's connected. I was he had a question or a comment about giants. I hope he would contribute, but I guess he's gone. Okay, so we've got a few minutes left. How do you want to wrap this part of it up? Robert, are you there? Yes I am. There you are. Okay. Robert. Enter the conversation yeah. with your nuggets of gold on giants.
2: Well, I was going to ask earlier whether or not Andrew believed that I, giants built Gobekli Teppi. But the other point that great I wanted question. to make earlier— hang on, Hang
0: on, hang on. That's a great question.
2: Andrew?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think the answer is no, they didn't. Um, but who I do think built it was the Anunnaki, the Watchers, the Nephilim, or well, certainly— they are the names that have been accredited to the builders of Gebekli Litepe. And even Klaus Schmidt, the discoverer of Gebekli Tepe, wrote that he believed that the builders were remembered in myth and legend as the Anunnaki. He wrote that.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I, I was a- also going to comment on the Denisovans. Do you know that the uh, strongest Denisovan strain remaining on Earth right now, most concentrated, is in the Melanesians? And the theory of the Melanesians is that they are an offshoot of Denisovans that crossed with Homo floriensis. Remember the famous little hobbit? Yep, that's right. That 30,000 yep. years. I thought that's an interesting point. And also the association of Denisovan with the giants and the giant mounds in Ohio. It's really widespread, really widespread. Yeah, no, it, no, that's absolutely correct. And, um, I mean, the... the, the,
1: the
0: um, We're hearing New York City in the background of Robert. <clears throat> yeah, but... Um, Thank you, Robert. Okay, look, the, the, the Denisovans
1: did not build Gobekli Tepe. The Giants did not build it. But I do believe that the technology that went into the design, the construction, both of Gobekli Tepe and the Giza pyramid field, is the legacy of the Denisovans. I have no doubt about that at all. It gradually made its way westwards from the Alte Mountains, across the Urals, along the Russian steppe, down through the Caucasus, into Anatolia. You know, the so geographical So when,
0: when you say you have no doubt, give us the paper trail. Why don't you have the the paper trail? Is actually a stone trail, not a paper trail, because being
1: metaphorical, the the stone tool (laughs) technologies that we find in the Altai Mountains that were developed at the time of the Denisovans, you know, just before they disappear about forty thousand years ago, ends up turning up at Gobekli Tepe by at least nine thousand BC, and you can see the trail and. This has been written about by stone tool specialists and experts. I quote this in the book. And and they show that this trail can be traced all the way from the area of the Altai Mountains and Mongolia right the way through to the area of Anatolia.
2: I also wanted to comment for a moment on the, harken back to the Martian dust cloud. And I wanted to say that I believe that Martian dust cloud is being raised by electrostatic forces that are being generated now as mars is approaching earth very rapidly for the july 31st uh let's call it conjunction but as it passes by i want to warn everyone there are going to be tremendous uh tectonic uh, forces unleashed uh not the you mean, least of you
0: mean you mean here on earth Robert?
2: here on earth not the least of which are volcanic volcanic activity but the last time that this happened in 2003, on July 5th, I was on a radio show, and I said that the, this passage of Mars was going to create superstorms such as we had never seen before. And in the wake of Mars' passage, we had that chain of super hurricanes that hit the south out of the Gulf, Katrina, Ophelia, and Rita.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I suspect that this is going to happen again. I wanted to say... I have done this experiment. Light a candle, take two bar magnets, and put the bar magnets near the candle. You will see that you can control the candle. You can compress it. Oh yeah, because it's ionized plasma. And that, and that same effect is happening between the core magnetism of the Earth and Mars as it approaches. So it's like two magnetized billiard balls approaching each other that will repel each other with great force. But I think that. Wherever a magnetic fields are intersecting, there uh, is generated an electrical current. And we're going to see superstorms and arcs of lightning mm. like we've never seen before. And Hawaii, get ready. because. When well, you say the, never
0: seen before, you mean for 17 years?
2: Uh, for, for 17 years, but with the uh, current state of uh, volcanic activity and the amount of ash in the atmosphere, I think it's going to create a uh, dis- distressful thunderstorms Mm. so i wanted to get that out early and i want everybody to really get ready for july 31st i'm so excited for everyone i saw this in 2003 at 128 x magnification and it is the most awesome sight on earth literally (laughs) it scared me and i saw the next day when i had seen the eye of mars with my living eye I saw the fakery of NASA in what they put out the next day, purported to be a Hubble telescope photo. They had destroyed it, the, the whole thing. It was a cartoon.
0: Are you the talking actress- about Solus Locus?
2: I'm um, Sol- Solus Locus. I saw Solus Locus in the shadows on that night, November. Okay. Uh, excuse me, uh, August 26, 27, 28. I also saw the hell the Basin. And I'm talking about arcs of electricity that I saw arcing over Mars, Plasma, Aurora, Australia, mm-hmm. or So get ready, folks. It's the most amazing sight. The air glow, the atmosphere is visible. That's how I knew the next morning. And when I turned completely against NASA, because what they presented to the world public was a cartoon. Well, this
0: is a physics they don't want people to get scared by, obviously.
2: Right. It's a living
0: planet. So yeah. hang on, hang on, hang but on. There... We've got five minutes left. Let's let's come back to Andrew because Andrew's our, you Oh, know, yeah. Any, any more relationship to questions of giants? Because I've been hearing, you know, I forget the guy. R used to have him on all the time. He's wrote a couple of books on giants. Giants disappear out of museums really weirdly. Andrew, don't you think?
1: Um. Yeah. There's a lot of rubbish that's actually talked about this this disappearance in the Smithsonian, whatever. I mean, it's something that. Myself and Greg Little uh, covered in the book Path of Souls that we brought out in 2014. I mean, the the problem is that at the end of the 1980s uh, and beginning of the 1990s, the the NAGPRA laws um, relating to the repatriation of indigenous bones meant that every state-run museum in the United States had to repatriate all bones didn't matter how old they were, you know, what original territory they came from. They had to be given back to the the tribe that was closest to the spot where they were found. And, I mean, you can imagine that there were millions, millions of bones in places like the Smithsonian, and they got rid of them all. This is the thing. They cleared out every single one of them. Now, what exactly happened to them, we don't know, but they had to get rid of them. Mm. And at that point... We lost every possibility DNA testing any giant bone that had been found in a
0: mound. Isn't that kind cells. of convenient? Well it's, it's, did someone it's, engineer that legislation no, for exactly I, I, this I, purpose? No, it's just stupid. How do you know? It's, it's think it's, about it. These people are stupid. And um the But problem you is, know there are conspiracies ongoing to keep us from knowing who the hell we are. Yeah, but um, you i You can't mean, have I've done got, all the work you've done and I mean, not have encountered well, several of them.
1: True, but I, I do think that stupidity probably uh, is the more obvious answer in this case. Well, it's safer. And, and just a few years later, you had really the birth of genetic sciences. Yeah. And just
0: particularly- as we're coming into our own, where we can figure yeah. out who the hell we are, yeah. you have a law that makes it impossible to verify who the hell we are, and you yeah. say that's a coincidence.
1: Well, it's, yeah, in some ways it is, but it's also convenience as well. It's politically it,
0: correct convenience coincidence, you know. It is. It, of course it is. Yeah,
1: of course. And,
0: you know, because... So what happens to new things that are dug up now? Who do they belong well, to? Who can test it, them? Who can... Theory,
1: in theory, they cannot be DNA tested unless they th- there's very special circumstances involved. I mean... You have Kennewick Man, um, which was uh, human remains that were found. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say Washington State, uh, wherever Kennywick is on the, the the west coast of the United States. Um, and the these remains date back about nine to ten thousand years. And there was the most incredible
4: ninety uh, you know,
1: uh, debate over whether DNA testing could. Um, eventually it was done, but there were protests by Native American peoples and all sorts of horrible, horrible scenes. Um, and therefore, it's almost impossible now. But hopefully, we'll get a bone. If anybody knows that there is one, please tell me because there are archaeologists waiting to do the DNA testing right now to initiate it.
0: Hey guys, second, mm. Andrew. I thank you so much. What an incredible! Tour de force of research. I mean, you—you you at some point are—I should think—which should be in line for a Nobel Prize. I mean, this is stunning. Connecting the dots,
2: absolutely well, stunning.
0: You, <laughs> and Robert, I want to thank you for your questions and for being a, a good soldier and standing in. And we'll do a, a show ourselves together in the not too distant future.
2: Okay, Richard. Have a good night.
0: You yes, too. Care. You too. Good anyway, night. everyone, until next week, next Saturday and Sunday night. This is Richard Hoagland, The Other Side of Midnight, signing off. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Ten
4: seconds.